Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. World Just a little under two weeks until the latest royal wedding, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are planning to marry at Windsor Castle May 19th. And the guest list is light on world leaders and heavy, relatively speaking, with members of the public. And that's got Atish Tassir thinking about how much the royal family has and hasn't changed. He's a novelist who had a view into their world in his 20s when he dated the daughter of the Prince and Princess of Kent. Tassir writes about that in this month's Vanity Fair. His piece is called Race and the Royals, an Outsider's View Inside Kensington Palace. And he joins us now from our bureau in New York. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So uh, you say you were one of the first, as you put it, natives of that former empire to date a member of the royal family. Uh, Just briefly tell us what that was like. You have some eyebrow-raising anecdotes in your piece. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I think I'm looking back and uh, aware of the fact that there was this empire and that, that you know, Ella's great-grandfather was George V, Emperor of India, and we were, as Indians, we were sort of subject peoples. And so there was a kind of political dimension, but when you're very young, you're hardly aware of those things. But there were some things that sort of made you note that perhaps you were being treated differently. I've always felt like with Britain that there was always a kind of low-grade racism that one experienced almost on a daily basis. Like in America, you feel it's a much bigger convulsion and the society is kind of reckoning with it in a more sincere but more troubled way. In England, it was always very light, you know. So it was you'd come in and the guys on the walkie-talkie would be like, ah, you're the Indian fella who's going with Gabriella. Mm-hmm. And it was like sort of like a, a greeting. Limerick. Yeah, the first line of a limerick. But uh, obviously there was an implication because at that point there was no one of my shape and size and color around, you know, so it, it was definitely there. Yeah, you focus uh, in this piece on Princess Michael of Kent, who recently, of course, caused controversy when she wore a blackamoor brooch uh, when she met Meghan Markle, who is biracial. And you say that that isn't surprising that she would have done something like that. 
Yeah, I always, uh, I always, firstly, I want to say that she was always super generous and warm and uh, very, very affectionate with me. So there was no problem of that kind. But there was, uh, you know, there were certain attitudes. And I think with her, like, like there was a, there was a kind of desire to shock. Do you think that's because at least the elder royals are, are very insular? They're very protected from the rest of society and, and its headwinds and changes? Yeah, I think that is true. I think that it wasn't just, I mean, it was colored people, homosexuals, Jews. People would people would have these very polite manners and then they would say these rather awful things, you know. It's like, mm. I'm terribly sorry. I don't like Jews very much, you know. And you just can't talk like that. So there was certainly a kind of, it was very, very archaic. Your piece has gotten quite a bit of reaction in the British tabloids and uh, and some of it has not been positive. What's your reaction to the reaction? My reaction to the reaction is that it was spearheaded by the Daily Mail, which is really an out-and-out, almost a racist enterprise. It's The D- Daily Mail has been one of the most strenuous advocates for, for Brexit, but they were also avoiding some of the serious themes of the piece. Well, let's talk about some of those things. Um, Diana was famously involved with Dodie Fired 20 years ago, and there was a lot of talk then. Now, Harry is marrying Meghan Markle, as we mentioned, who is biracial. So have things changed? What does that say about the United Kingdom now? I think that Britain is in a very strange place because the royals are kind of, as somebody said to me from the family, they're sort of one bright spot. Like they're young, they're dynamic. They represent something that's very sort of inspiring when everything else is actually very gray because there's been this uh, sort of political convulsion that was Brexit. Do you think the royal family can really survive in a time when we have other kinds of celebrities that cost uh, the taxpayer nothing? I mean, clearly a lot of hopes are being placed on, on not only Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, but, but the other younger royals like Prince William. I very, very sincerely believe that Britain couldn't do without them. There's such a deep attachment. They're sort of the very like emblem of history, of continuity. Unlike America, there's been almost a kind of uh, a certain kind of disregard for history. Britain has always fallen back on the past. It's always needed the past. So there, I, I think that they will find a way for the royal family to continue to carry on that symbolism, at least. I must ask you, are you attending the wedding? I'm not, <laughs> especially not after this piece. <laughs> I was about to say, that is Atish Tassir. His latest novel is called The Way Things Were. Thank you so much for being on Weekend Edition. Thank you. But because white Americans can keep themselves separate from black Americans, there is a sense that this other will never be who I am. So if there is a way to get people to understand, I don't know. I don't know. I can't answer that question. I don't know. You know, um, Robin Kelly says that we're going to need a surrealist moment. There's going to have to be something that breaks the continuum. Because until white women start giving birth to black babies, I think we are going to stay living in these incommensurable experiences. Ruman Alam writes women well. His first acclaimed novel, Rich and Pretty, followed two young women, best friends who grow up and then part. His new second novel, That Kind of Mother, begins as another story about a female relationship, this one between Rebecca, a white poet, and first-time mom, and Priscilla, a black woman who works as her nanny. 
I think it is an inherently complex relationship and one that is not often discussed. I am somebody who has two children of my own, and my husband and I have had three different childcare providers, and they were our employees, but we relied on them with the only thing that matters in our lives, which is our children. And so the level of trust and intimacy that is an important part of that relationship elevates it from a traditional understanding of what it is to have an employee or what it is to have an employer, I think. So these two characters, um, their relationship is actually transformed when suddenly the families truly become a family. Um, Rebecca adopts Priscilla's child. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because obviously there is not only the issue of their relationship, but there is a race issue and a class issue here too. Absolutely. I think that the way that we talk about complicated political issues now is much more appropriate. We talk about the intersection between race and feminism, for example, or class and race. And I think that all of those concerns are really linked in the power dynamic at the center of this book. Rebecca is a white woman. Priscilla is a black woman. They come together as a family via adoption, but there is still a lot that separates them from one another. And that is what the book is trying to press on and tease out. Mm. I mean, clearly, it's personal for you. You know, you've written about your sons who are adopted. They're mm -hmm. black. Your husband is white. Uh, as you've said and described yourself, you're brown. Mm -hmm. uh, was this story um, <laughs> drawn on your own experiences? Uh, certainly not. I mean, this is, uh, you know, the emotional truth in the book is very much my own, but you would have to know me pretty well to understand what in the text is autobiographical. I'll tell you one thing, since we're friends now, that okay. I do make spaghetti carbonara just like Rebecca does in the book, <laughs> and I always guiltily throw a package of spinach into it. But this is a story about adoption using very dramatic and heightened circumstances, and in my own experience, adoption does not work this way. Um, our children were placed in open adoptions, and uh, there's a certain amount of um, maternal agency in that choice. And in this book, I'm talking about the sort of sudden death of a character, the sudden erasure of someone, and the adoption almost feels like it does in myths. The child just arrives wholesale. Hmm. One of the things that I found really interesting in the book is the culminating scene where there is the quote-unquote talk. And mm. we've become so familiar now because of Black Lives Matter with that talk that um, African-American parents have specifically with their young black sons about mm. the way that they deal with the police and the way that they may be treated in different spaces. But you have set this book in the last century. And of course, that idea, that knowledge um, had not really penetrated white American consciousness then. That's right. Um, there's two levels to this answer. One is that it's a great advantage to write about the past because I know how the story ends even if the characters inside the text do not. And the reader knows how the story ends too. So in the text, when Rebecca talks about holding up Bill Cosby as a role model, the reader understands the ways in which Bill Cosby has failed to be the role model we all maybe once believed that he was. And the notion that black parents have historically provided to their sons this intelligence about what will happen to them upon becoming black men, this is a tradition that exists within the black community that I would not have known about had I not had black sons. And it felt really like an important opportunity to explore the ways in which 
black Americans have been having these conversations and white Americans have not. We've heard a lot about the limitations of authors writing about things that they haven't experienced. There's been a lot of controversy about this, uh, especially when we're discussing other races and, and even gender. Do you think that applies? I mean, do you think that that's, that's something that you um, embrace? Sure. I think a lot of what that conversation is about is a particular power dynamic. And if there is a reader who is a woman or who is a black woman who reads this book and says, he's got it totally wrong and I'm offended, I have to accept that. I hope that that will not be the case. And I think so much of it is in the approach. And I, I hope that readers can sense that my ap approach to writing about difference is from a point of a genuine desire to understand and depict something that I can't know firsthand. And I think a lot of the sensitivity around inhabiting a different perspective, whether it's race or gender or ability, people should be sensitive and they should wade into this stuff carefully. And that's what I've tried to do. Ruman Alam is the author of That Kind of Mother. Thank you very much. Thank you. Because until white women start giving birth to black babies, I think we are going to stay living in these incommensurable experiences. We have some breaking news, a disturbing find along the California coast in connection to the Hart family from Woodland, Washington. Investigators say about a mile north from where the crash happened in March, a person found a pair of girls' jeans with a shoe inside. And inside that shoe, deputies say they found skeletal remains of what appears to be a foot that they're now trying to identify. Deputies say Jennifer Hart intentionally drove the family's SUV off a cliff. The bodies of her wife, Sarah, and three of their six adopted children were found inside. The body of one of the daughters was found later, but two of the children uh, are still missing. Today, during low tide, search and rescue crews are searching that area where those latest remains were found. Meanwhile, toxicology reports show that three of the children had been given a drug found in Benadryl. Uh, one child had no toxicology findings. Deputies say that Jennifer Hart was drunk at the time as well. We'll continue to follow the story and bring you the very latest. This is Lucy's house, and I'm going to show you what happens to families when one of the members becomes a basin. Now, basin is crazy. I mean, it makes you go crazy and make you do silly things. <laughs> Look at the family. The family is crazy. Look at the kids. <laughs> Look at Lucy over here. Lucy is... Look at Lucy is going through problems because her husband is a basic. <laughs> and this is Lucy's wash pot right here. This is the wash pot, and this is also the cooking pot. And her children are going crazy. All right, two other news now. Researchers estimate that every 15 minutes here in the U.S., a baby is born who is withdrawing from opioids. That statistic, that staggering statistic, raises concerns about how the drugs affect the long-term health of children. There is little research to go on. Sarah Jane Tribble brings us this report. It seems to be a pretty typical preschool pickup, but it's not. I like to peek in on her and see what she's doing before she sees me. Amanda Willamy sees her two-year-old daughter, Tacey, before opening the classroom door. There's a dance party in progress. <laughs> then, Tacey spots her mom. Hey! Okay, okay. Did you dance? We are at Horizons in Carborough, North Carolina. It's a place where mothers can bring their children and get the residential treatment they need for substance use disorder. Now it's time to pick up Willamy's six-month-old girl, Jade. What has she got? 
Willamy injected opioids during both of her pregnancies, and her babies were born with neonatal abstinence syndrome. She remembers that withdrawals were harder for toddler Tacy than they've been for Jade. It wasn't just like we had this two-week period at the hospital of her being sick. Like, it went on for months. She'd sleep for 20 minutes, and then she'd wake up and just be miserable. Today, both Tacy and Jade are developing normally. Still, Willamy worries. How did the drugs affect their tiny bodies and brains? Research is just beginning to point towards the answers. A recent study has found reasons to be positive. Andre Jones is executive director at Horizons and co-author of that study. The children, as through time, tended to score within the normal range of the tests that we had. Neonatologist Dr. Stephanie Murhar at Cincinnati Children's Hospital released a separate study. Overall, the children in both short-term studies developed within normal ranges for cognitive, motor, and speech development. Murhar's data, though, did show that some children experienced notable delays and hinted that there could be problems down the road. It's important to know that there is a risk for some delays and that these kids are monitored closely. But the reason for those delays is unclear, whether it's related to drugs or environment or both. Researchers are quick to point out that fear spread nationwide about the children of the crack cocaine epidemic of the 1980s and early 90s. Dire predictions of developmental delays turned out to be grossly exaggerated, according to the National Institutes of Health. The Horizons Treatment Center actually had its start back then. Jones says the lives of people who use substances are often chaotic, and that affects their children in a variety of ways. It's incredibly difficult um, to make a simple linear cause and effect between there was a prenatal exposure to opiates, therefore we see this particular poor birth outcome. Most of the mothers at Horizons took multiple substances when pregnant and also experienced trauma, abuse, or neglect in their own childhoods. And Joan says that can be hard to overcome. They haven't had positive role models. You know, I think there's oftentimes an unrealistic expectation by society. They're supposed to automatically know how to be, quote unquote, good mothers, how to be nurturing mothers. And that's like trying to teach somebody algebra when we've never even had addition. That's why Horizons pairs parenting classes with addiction treatment. Wilmy began in February. On a recent afternoon, Jade and Tacy are napping. Her apartment has the feel of home. There's a pack and play near the dining room table, baby bottles drying on the kitchen counter. She takes a deep breath before answering a question about why this is her third try at Horizons. It's going to work. It is. Because I've got a lot of tools to take with me and to stay clean instead of using drugs. And Child Protective Services has threatened to take Tacey and Jade. I'm not just some drug addict. I'm a mother of two kids, and I feel like I'm a great mother. Um, I have educational goals I plan to accomplish, and I plan on being a productive human being in our society. A paper following babies up to two years old is expected out later this year. But national experts say there is no long-term research underway that watches children as they go through grade school and beyond. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Jane Tribble. But, Mark, do you realize what this means? I mean, you're going to have to be a black person. No shit. Yeah, but for three years, Mark. Three years, what's that going to be like? Gordo, it's going to be great. These are the 80s, man. It's the Cosby decade. America loves black people. I wasn't expecting to feel anything other than satisfied, but I'll admit I'm a bit conflicted about Bill Cosby's conviction for sexual assault. To be clear, I'm relieved that Andrea Constan, the former Temple University employee, won her case. Glad that she and the prosecutors took up that fight again after the first case ended in a hung jury.
and especially glad this second time around that the women who weren't allowed to speak during the first case also had their day in court. So on the legal front, case closed. But it's not so easy to close down the emotional piece of this, the piece that has left me struggling with how to regard Cosby's overall legacy. Not just his groundbreaking TV show, which fictionalized the lives of black people I knew, but also his comedy routines, some now firmly a part of pop culture. My dentist told me Cosby's 1983 hilarious routine about his visit to the dentist was part of his training curriculum. More, I was always most proud of his work offstage, creating opportunities for black directors and producers, and single-handedly helping found the organization of black stunt professionals. Maybe I wouldn't care so much if Bill Cosby were just another guy who did wrong, but he isn't. He was America's dad, a black man, who did wrong. It might be 2018, but rarely are black people able to enjoy their success or suffer their crimes individually. The rest of us feel it, too. I believe Cosby's accusers, yet as a black American, it's heartbreaking to see his achievements erased. Hard to watch his image devolve into a guy who drugs women to force them into sex. In the months leading up to the trial, a national TV correspondent gathered professional African-American women and men from Greater Boston for a group interview reflecting our reaction. The interview sparked heated exchanges divided along gender lines, though, interestingly, not along age lines. All the women agreed with me that Cosby's cultural contributions didn't absolve him. All the men recounted the painful history of falsely accusing black men of sex crimes. I remember one man saying, There is no evidence, but because of these accusations, everything he worked for will be destroyed. The interview never aired, and I've often wondered if that guy ever changed his mind once the case went to trial. But I told the interviewer that night that I didn't think Cosby's signature work, The Cosby Show, should go off the air. I know it'll be even harder now to watch that series and not think of what happened to the women. But then again, I never confuse Bill Cosby with his warm and loving alter ego, Cliff Huxtable. That went away years ago when I interviewed him. He was alternately arrogant and dismissive in the time before we took the stage. I held my own during the verbal jousting match, but I remember being disappointed that he wasn't even polite. It won't be so hard to reconcile that Cosby with the 80-year-old guy who may get 30 years in prison. Justice has been served, thank God, but at a price much more costly than a ruined legacy. I'm Callie Crossley, WGBH, Boston's local NPR. New York, New York. The Attorney General of New York abruptly resigned last night. Eric Schneiderman's announcement came just hours after, after the New Yorker magazine published an article that detailed accounts by several women who say that he physically abused them. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office has now opened an investigation into the reported allegations. Schneiderman denies the charges against him. Until now, the New York Democrat had been a strong voice in the Me Too movement, speaking out against the harassment and abuse of women. In fact, Schneiderman had been in the middle of prosecuting one of the legal cases against Harvey Weinstein. Here's Schneiderman denouncing the film mogul. The conduct really was shocking. The pattern of abuse, the use of employees to manipulate his targets or victims of sexual harassment is just really astonishing. 
Jane Mayer co-wrote the New Yorker piece that led to Schneiderman's resignation, and she joins us now. Thanks for being with us, Jane. Good to be with you. And before we start, we should just warn our listeners, details of the story may not be suitable uh, for everybody. Um, So let's get right to it. Jane, what do these women accuse the former attorney general of doing? Uh, They basically describe a pattern of abuse in which he subjected them to non-consensual violence of various sorts, but mostly he slapped them repeatedly across the face very hard, very unexpectedly, and then also when he was having sex with them, and he also choked them um, in bed. And um, We should say these are women that Schneiderman was in uh, relationships with at the time of the right. abuse. Right. He was, he was involved with them or in most of them were former girlfriends. Um, one of them is someone he was just making an advance on. Um, she's a very well-known attorney in New York city. And he, um, out of the blue, suddenly let loose and just hit her incredibly hard across the face twice. And she was completely stunned and started sobbing. And, um, took pictures, um, which the New Yorker saw. The next day, you could still see the mark, raised mark on her face. So it was, um, it, you know, just one such case maybe would have been more than we could have, uh, you know, not quite enough to make you really believe it because mm-hmm. he is such a progressive advocate for women. Um, but it, having done the reporting and spoken to all of the women, it, 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 the same details kept coming back over and over again. Um, right. And, and these are women you point out in the piece. They, they weren't talking. They didn't even know each other and their stories were lining up. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and over many years time, um, the same thing over and over again. And he demeaned them and spoke in language. I don't think I'll, I'll probably share it with the morning viewers, uh, right. listeners. Um, but it was just incredibly ugly other than, I mean, some of it you can talk about. He, he, he one, one woman who is Sri Lankan said that he called her his brown slave and made her say that, um, she was his property in, and he would keep slapping her across the face until she said so. And death threats, um, death threats. There were death threats. Yeah. I mean, he said if they ever broke up with him or ever went public about this, he'd have to kill them. He said to one that he could have her followed and have her phones tapped. And he said to another, um, when she sort of made some complaint about something, I think it was about jaywalking, basically, that he was being dragging her across the street. And she said, it's against the law. He said, I am the law. And she said, if there's ever a a sentence that that summed him up, um, it would be that. So uh, clearly... It's different when when the perp, the perpetrator is someone who is in such a high position, who is the law, quote unquote. What finally? He's the con- highest um, law enforcement officer in New York State, right. and and it, it created a lot of incredible amount of fear among these women. Some of them didn't go on the record because they really continue to be so frightened, um, and they've, it's not not just that that he would come after them necessarily, but that it would ruin them in some way. Um, you know, there's still such a stigma and that no one would believe them. And what finally compelled them to change their mind? I think it was uh, the moment in history here, this sort of Me Too movement. And the, when, when Rob Porter was uh, the White House aide resigned 
uh, because of allegations from his former wives that he'd abused them. These are women who are feminist activists, and they felt really, they struggled with it and felt, you know, how can we cheer on other women and not tell what we know? And, and they gradually came forward. And of course, the great irony is that Schneiderman himself cast himself as a, as a champion of victims of, of abuse. Uh, he did, and he's got a position, I mean, he had a position overseeing the, the, the Weinstein case um, in, in New York. Jane Mayer of The New Yorker, uh, we appreciate you sharing your reporting this morning with us. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. Bye-bye. I can feel it deep inside, this black nigger's pride. I have no fear when I say, and I say it every day, every nigger is a star Every nigger is a star Who will deny that you and I and every nigger is a star A Kansas City firefighter accused of spitting on a three-year-old boy and calling him a racial slur went on trial today. In the courtroom, the judge heard two very different accounts of what happened that night at the Hooters in Overland Park. KCTV5's Ashley Arnold was in the courtroom and is live now with what happened. Ashley. Well, Brad Ellen, this is actually still going on. Within the past hour, the prosecution decided to rest after bringing out multiple witnesses. We heard from the grandfather of the little boy that that uh, officials had said had been spit on. We heard from two witnesses that were there that night. And we also heard from a police officer as well as a detective. Now, as far as what was happening inside the courtroom and what was said, witnesses that were on the stand did corroborate different things. One included the spitting and use of a racial slur. Another witness said that he heard uh, Jeremy Skeen, the firefighter in question, mentioned guns in a seemingly threatening way. Now, police did say that when they spoke to Skeen that night, he claimed that there were no slurs used, but that there was an argument and that he told uh, Mr. Harris that he needed to pick up his child. Police did say that he smelled of alcohol and that his eyes were bloodshot when they were speaking to him. Now, one of the big things that's been going back and forth inside the courtroom from defense has been saying that the statements that were brought together by the grandfather initially did not corroborate and did not go along with the video that actually has been released. Today was our first time seeing some of that surveillance video from inside the Hooters. Now, despite the fact there is a surveillance video, there is no video of that actual intercation and that altercation between Harris and Skeen. Now, as I said, the prosecution did recently rest, and they do have the defense up there now who is bringing up witnesses. We're going to have continuing coverage tonight on KCTV5, and Rudy Harper will have those latest details tonight. Live in Overland Park, Ashley Arnold, KCTV5. Now, I've lived long enough to know that race relations are better than they were 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, no matter what some folks say. You can see it not just in statistics, you see it in the attitudes of young Americans across the political spectrum. A 25-year-old South Carolina man is facing criminal charges following his attempt to hire a hitman to kill his black neighbor. Uh, his name is Brandon LaCroix, and uh, I would like to share his lovely mugshot with you. And it is definitely shocking that this man is only 25 years old. But nonetheless, uh, he was offering $500. He offered $500,000 uh, to a hitman to kill his black neighbor, hang his body from a tree, 
and burn a cross on his lawn. Now, this story unfolded after uh, LaCroix reached out, which, by the way, LaCroix sounds like my favorite soft drink, which sucks. Oh, <laughs> well, that's unfortunate. Every time I say his name, I'm like, oh. Um, but it, it all unfolded after you he- You think that's bad? My favorite soft drink's Coke. We got yeah, the Coke brothers. Yeah, sucks. <laughs> uh, he reached out to a white supremacist group, thinking that one of them would take the $500 offer to murder his neighbor. And uh, after that happened, someone informed uh, authorities about what was going on. We don't know who it is. It was an anonymous tip. At that point, the FBI gets involved, and they start communicating with LaCroix. LaCroix thought that the FBI agent was, was a white supremacist who would carry out the hit. Uh, but in fact, it was an undercover agent. And after uh, giving that agent a $100 deposit, he was arrested. Luckily, he was arrested. Um, now, apparently, he also had planned on using this hitman for other people, uh, and he talked about plans to take over his neighbor's property. That might be the reason for this conflict. I don't know. The authorities haven't really disclosed the details for his motive, uh, but we do know that he is caught, and luckily he will not carry out any type of violence. Well, I mean, the headline in the New York Post says, white man wanted to hire hitman to kill black neighbor. And I read that, and I thought, Okay, I mean, but it could be a random white dude and a random black dude. But then the cross on the lawn and the hanging kind of gave it away. And reaching out to a white supremacist group to, to do it. Right, and so now you might think, well, maybe you just wanted to steal the guy's property and the cross on the lawn was a head fake. But then he didn't think he was gonna get caught. Why did he reach out to a white supremacist? So. Anyway, it doesn't superior. matter. Superior, he's superior. Though. Yeah, he's, just remember that. And by the way, he's so superior. He thought five hundred bucks would get the job done, uh, and that and he, somehow with his superior genes, he couldn't figure out that he was talking to an FBI agent. Also, I didn't know that that's the way you uh, get property in the country. That you you know just take someone out and then you just take over their home. Yeah, how do you take the? Home? I, you, I mean, you don't have the. You, you don't have the deed. You can't just take the guy's house, even if you murder him. What the hell kind of logic is that? Wow! Hey, yo, drama. Hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. Also, I didn't know that that's the way you uh, get property in the country. That you, you know, just take someone out and then you just take over their home. Yeah, how do you take the? Whole, you, know, you don't have the, you, you you don't have the deed. You can't just take the guy's house, even if you murder him. What the hell kind of logic is that? The hunt is on, and you're the prey. You're the prey. I was like, oh, I'm finally gonna get a grandson. They took that away from me. A broken-hearted mother says her daughter was killed by someone she called a friend. Her body was found last week in a pickup in McLean County. And new court documents reveal she was possibly choked to death. Our Bonnie Campo joins us live from the OSBI headquarters. Bonnie? 23-year-old Shalia Toombs was seven months pregnant. Three people have been arrested in the case, and two still have to be extradited back here to Oklahoma. Got up that Sunday morning. I saw when my daughter texted me, and she texted me a message um, that she was in trouble. Her mother rushed to her apartment, but there was no sign of Shalia. By May 2nd, a break in the case. 
Deputies say Daniel Vasquez confessed to a police officer at a gas station. He had Shalia's corpse in the cabin of his pickup. Evidence shows the body had been there for over three days. And then they came by and they um, told me that, yes, they identified her by her tattoos. And then, of course, of her being pregnant. Vasquez is accused of accessory to murder, while the other suspects found north of Little Rock, Arkansas. 30-year-old Joshua Finkbeiner and 42-year-old Stacy Harjo both arrested for first-degree murder. Twyla Taylor says her daughter and Harjo recently became friends, and the reason she was killed? Taylor says the suspects thought Shalia stole Finkbeiner's work backpack and hard drive, storing valuable oil-filled documents. We are a family of girls. My mom had two girls. I have Shalia. My sister has a daughter. My Shalia had two girls, and we were finally getting a boy. <laughs> and so that's, you know, I was like, oh, I'm finally going to get a grandson. But they took that away from me. Twyla says the child's name would have been Hayden. Now she'll raise the girls Shalia was forced to leave behind. And, um, and they're all I have left of her. The funeral, as well as a balloon release, has been scheduled for Friday at 11 in El Reno. You can find those details as well as a memorial fund to help the family on the News 9 app. Live on the scene on the story from OSBI headquarters, Bonnie Campo. To be we start tonight with a story that's making national headlines. University of Florida President Kenneth Fox made personal calls and left voicemails for 21 graduates over the weekend. He's apologizing for the behavior of a faculty member seen pushing students across the stage. TV20's Crystal Bailey spoke to two of the students who received one of those vo voicemails. Imagine working four years for your degree and wanting to celebrate the moment you get that diploma on stage, but someone takes that moment away from you. Two students feel that way after this weekend's graduation ceremonies. I mean, I had planned to do a dance on stage and to celebrate like this joyous occasion. Nafisa Atta, seen in this video, being pushed across the stage before she has the chance to salute her sorority at UF. And he pushed me um, forward, and then I kind of lost my footing a little bit, um, and then I also like lost my cap in the process of it. Oliver Talusma is also one of the graduates who was pushed at Saturday's graduation, left with this voicemail. I'm just uh, appalled that we did this to you. Um, and I personally apologize uh, that this happened at the very time that we all should be celebrating your uh, accomplishments. I think his response is uh, too little, too late, very reactionary. Um, he was sitting on stage, but he didn't do anything to intervene. President Fox saying on Sunday, it won't happen again. I want you all, our students, to know that we've changed that practice. And we also want each one of you to know that we celebrate you, your graduation and your accomplishments. Um, but I definitely feel like a lot more um, black students were targeted in this than um, our white students who did other moves and dance moves such as backflipping or taking selfies on stage but didn't receive the same aggressive treatment. There is a video of what looks like a white woman being pushed as well, but Atta says the man was more aggressive with minority students. Looking back after the fact, it's like kind of embarrassing that like that's my memory of college commencement here at UF. University representatives aren't saying who the faculty member involved is. We have uh, asked our human resources and also uh, this individual's college uh, to investigate and to take appropriate action. We have yet to hear what that action will be. Crystal Bailey, TV20 News. So how's the college responding to this incident? 
we're having a um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum on race, so we can discuss the incident and the surrounding issues of race. So the usual lip service. Uh, no comment. A graduate student at Yale University uh, was harassed by police officials, in fact, as many as four cops, after a white student saw her sleeping in the common area of a dorm building and uh, thought that this person uh, was some sort of threat and called the cops. Now, uh, the graduate student here is Lolade Sionbola, and uh, she is an incredibly accomplished woman. Again, she's a graduate student at Yale, where it costs as much as $63,000 a year just to get an education there in in its graduate schools. Um, She took a nap in the common area, and then this uh, white student comes in, tells her she's not authorized to be there, calls the cops, And unfortunately, uh, the situation escalates from there. Uh, She had to deal with the cops for as long as 15 minutes. And we have a few examples of the video that she posted on social media. So let's take a look at the first one. I have absolute right to document what's going on. I'm not taking your picture. This is this is Facebook Live. Here's what we're gonna do. That's fine. I need to go back to the 12th floor to finish writing my paper. What's uh? You got your ID on you? Yeah, I do. All right, can we see that? Why? Because we got a police call for you. Okay, let me open my apartment for you so that you can see that I belong here. I don't think there's a need for you to be here. I think you probably need to commit her to an institution. That's the only, like, use you have for being here. Once we verify that you're a resident here, then we'll be on our way. Okay, great. I need to get back to the 12th floor. i got to write my paper. Can we just have your ID, ma'am? Why? I just explained to you, we have a police call for you. You just said that if you prove that I live here, Correct. you would leave. Yep. So we'll okay, I just ID. opened I just opened the door to my apartment. That's fine. I, I can see that. Okay, thank so you for watching ID. that. Why? So we can verify who you are, and we'll get out of your hair. How's that? Man, that is frustrating. Yeah. So, you know, the right wing says, oh, bootstraps. Okay, she is a graduate student at Yale. So she did everything she could do. She did bootstrap, she did whatever she had to do. She's at Yale. Uh, and you know why she was uh, sleeping there? Because she was working all night on the paper she had to write as a graduate student. And it's her dorm. It's her dorm. This this all occurred around 1.30 in the morning. I, I, First of all, I don't even understand what goes through the mind of someone a student who walks into the common area of a dorm and sees someone sleeping in that common area or taking a nap in that common area. Like, why did it cross her mind that this woman posed any type of threat? And so there were other uh, black students at Yale uh, who spoke to the press and said that they also had uh, similar run-ins with this student, uh, which, by the way, you could hear Lolade mentioned in the video that we just showed you. And so who is Lolade? She holds a bachelor's degree in computer science with a minor in Spanish from the University of Missouri, Columbia, where she was a George Brooks scholar. She later moved to New York, where she worked in the tech industry. Uh, she's now getting a graduate degree at Yale in African-American studies. I mean, it, her resume is super impressive. I'm only giving you a tiny piece of it. So you're right, Jenk. She's done everything right, everything right. She's at Yale, and it doesn't matter. She still gets harassed by a student for simply taking a nap in the common area of this dorm. Yeah, so this is a new one, sleeping while black. And and this particular student and others, uh, 
uh, probably will disagree with me. I don't think, like, once the cops are called, the cops are, in, I think, in that situation, in a tough spot. Now, they went on too long. They asked her to open the door. She opened the door. They asked for the ID. I think asking for the ID is okay. Uh, and she gets them the ID. There's a slight misspelling in her name mm-hmm. and, the, and the records. That's when you got to let it go, okay? Like, it's obviously her, and, it's, and she has a unique name. No, the fact that it's slightly misspelled, what do you think? Get this. Someone else broke into the dorm room, somehow got her key and her ID, but maliciously misspelled her name. No, this is Come crazy. On, guys. This is crazy. First right? of all, student IDs have photos on it. So if there was a misspelling in the name, you're right, Jenk, let it go. But it shouldn't even get to that point. They checked her ID up against the university's record. Like, think about the investigative work that went into that. Really, is, is that really a good use of a police officer's time? But but mainly, I get that in the beginning, the cops are in a little bit of a tough spot because somebody called them and they got to respond, right? But that person who called the cops, and then she has the audacity to say, don't you dare take a picture of me. You called the cops on me. I'm a fellow student, and I'm the one who's wrong for videotaping it? And like, you're the victim now? Yeah, you're in a public place, by the way. So um, she could have easily taken her picture or put her in the video, but she didn't. I mean, that shows some significant restraint. By the way, we have a second portion of the video that I want to share with you all. So let's take a look at that. I was sleeping in the common room and she comes in and turns the lights on. And she's like, why are you sleeping here? You're not supposed to be sleeping there. I'm going to call the police on you. But she called the police on my friend about three months ago. The university knows that she's unstable and she's still here. So you've dealt with her before? Well, this is my first time actually meeting her in person, but I know that she's the one who called the police on my friend. Would she call the police on your friend? Because he was in a stairwell and he was black. She did the same thing because my friend was in the stairwell and he was black. That doesn't sound right. Well, it doesn't sound right that I'm sitting here with you and I should be writing my paper either. I don't understand why I'm still here. So her friend did speak to the press and she said, he said uh, that she had, he had asked that woman for direction somewhere in the university. And that. Because that's what robbers (laughs) do. They come in and ask for directions. I just. Right. Uh, I can't anymore. So. Look, I'm sure that if you ask that woman if she's racist, she'd be like, no, no, uh, of course not. I, I don't actively think that all black people are criminals. I just happen to see think that most of the people I run into at Yale who are black are criminals, right? I mean, why else would they be doing a paper at Yale in the middle of the night? Why else would they be asking for directions for how to go to wherever they were going to go, a dorm, maybe a class at Yale? It never occurred to you that maybe they were asking for directions because they're a student there? And so I, I think that the person who called the cops is way worse than the cops. See, it used to be we could beat up minorities and nobody cared. It's the reason a lot of us joined the force. Hey, Mitch, you want to go down and arrest some homeless people but not be able to beat up any minorities? No, thank you. Yeah, no, I think we're good. This is video of the arrest. You can hear the woman just screaming for help. Channel 2's Michael Chinnick broke news of this incident. Mike with us live at the Alpharetta Police Department. The woman says, to say the least, she was scared. Absolutely terrified, Justin. She's a 65-year-old grandmother with diabetes and other health issues who found herself in the back of a squad car heading to jail. Now, the chief here in Alpharetta says some of what he saw in that video, he simply will not tolerate. Hey, man, Shut the up and get out of the car. Yeah. What are you talking about? 
Through an open records request, we obtained this dash cam video of Alpharetta police officer James Legg screaming at 65-year-old Rose Campbell Friday night during a traffic stop. And I just panicked. I just, it was like my heart exploded. I, I didn't expect that in America. I didn't expect that in Atlanta. I didn't expect that, especially in Alpharetta. It all started after another officer pulled Campbell over and wrote her a ticket for failing to maintain her lane as she exited Georgia 400 at Windward Parkway. Uh, the driver did not agree with the officer uh, and uh, try, attempted to debate the nature of the traffic stop. Everybody does that. You're going to ask the cop if he gives you a ticket, unless you know you're wrong, he's going to ask why. Uh, the driver ultimately refused to sign her citation. Campbell says she believes signing the ticket admitted guilt, so she marked it with an X and asked to see a supervisor, and she refused to open her door. After Officer Michael Swerdlov called for backup, Campbell finally agreed to get out. I'll come out for you. Okay, I won't come out for him. But as she did, the video shows Leg get very aggressive. We showed that video to Campbell. No wonder my blood pressure went sky high. As I was watching the video, I had some major concerns about what I was seeing. Alpharetta's police chief addressed the incident in a taped statement. John Robison immediately suspended Leg, and he says he's ordered an internal investigation. There are aspects of this video that you're likely about to watch that simply do not represent who we are as an organization. Well, I think they should have disciplinary action should be taken with that gentleman. But Campbell told me she doesn't believe Leg ought to be fired. She thinks that he needs that disciplinary action and should be retrained. She also wants an apology from Alpharetta Police and the city. They say they intend to reach out to her. She's also retained a civil rights attorney, but at this point has not decided whether she will take legal action. Live in Alpharetta, North Fulton County, I'm Mike Pachenik, Channel 2 Action News. I want to be a cop. Tonight, it's being called the largest ever civil verdict against a Philadelphia police officer. A man set in jail for almost four years, and today a jury decided to pay that man millions. David Spunt sat down with him for an exclusive interview, and David's live now at the Criminal Justice Center with more. David. Well, Kanifa Boozer didn't even want to do this interview originally, but decided to speak in front of our cameras and share his story because he wants to get the message out that justice will prevail and there are people behind bars right now that should not be. Some points I'm happy, some points I'm, you know, nervous. I'm just happy that it's all over. It's been a brutal seven years for Kanifa Boozer. The Philadelphia native was outside with friends in January 2011 on Abbotsford Avenue in Germantown. Boozer says a friend took out a gun and fired a shot into the air. A nearby police officer named Ryan Waltman arrested Boozer as the shooter, claiming Boozer pointed a gun at him. Boozer says he told detectives it was his friend who fired the shot in the air. But he says Officer Waltman never investigated that claim. Boozer went to jail for almost four years because he couldn't post his half a million dollar bail. In times of, you know, grief, when I sat there in my cell and cried and prayed to God that I wanted to die, you know, it always was my family who wrote me letters and was basically my support. Boozer was released from prison in 2014, but sued Officer Waltman for what he calls false testimony. Waltman, who is still on the force, was represented by a city solicitor. Ultimately, a jury decided to pay Boozer $10 million for being wrongfully accused and imprisoned. I believe without, without speaking for the jurors that they want 
the city to stop and look and figure out what happened to Mr. Boozer, and let's try to, to, to not have it happen again. Boozer lost his mother and sister while sitting behind bars. He wants people not to focus on his jury award, but these words he has for those who are behind bars and shouldn't be. If you're innocent and the police wrongfully arrested you, keep fighting. Keep fighting and don't never give up. No comment from the Philadelphia Police Department on this case. A spokesman for Mayor Jim Kenney says city officials are reviewing all options and may file an appeal. If they file an appeal, the money would come from the city, but that could be held up if that appeal is indeed filed from the city. Reporting live tonight, David Spunt, CBS 3 Eyewitness News. in the U.S. have been using facial recognition software for years, usually after a suspect is caught on camera during a crime. Now, real-time facial recognition is on the horizon. In China, authorities are touting a new system's ability to spot people as they're walking down the street. Similar software is being tried by police in Russia, in India, even the United Kingdom. So when might it reach American streets? NPR's law enforcement correspondent Martin Costi went to find out. This is Connect ID. It's a convention for the biometrics industry that's held in Washington. And the vendor's exhibit hall is just what you'd expect. Everywhere you look, there are big screens with live views of your face as you go by, as computers track you and categorize you by age and sex. If they're connected to the right database, they could also guess your name. Terry Hartman is at the booth for a German company called Cognitech. And what's new, he says, is how good these systems are getting at recognizing faces in real-world conditions. You can see all of these matches are different poses. The people aren't facing the camera straight on. You've got people with glasses. You've got the lady looking down. She's matched, looking in a different direction. Link that to a national photo database, and it's pretty much the end of anonymity in public places. That's clearly the appeal in autocratic societies like China. But these systems are also being pitched to Western governments. Police in the United Kingdom are now scanning crowds for known troublemakers or wanted criminals. And the same tech is being offered to American police, says Claire Garvey. She tracks this issue for the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law. Every major company that sells to law enforcement in the U.S. advertises the ability to do real-time. And we've seen a fair amount of interest on the part of law enforcement in purchasing these systems. American police aren't buying the real-time systems yet, but Garvey says a few departments have requested funding to try them out. If police are hesitant, it's because these systems are pricey, and there's also the risk of a public backlash. But when it comes to legal barriers... That's less of a concern. There's not a lot standing between instantaneous facial recognition technology and its ubiquitous use by police departments or cities. Jonathan Turley is a civil libertarian and law professor at George Washington University. He just gave a speech here at this convention appealing to the industry to set up better privacy protections. That's because he's not sure he can count on the courts to limit how police use facial recognition especially if Americans get used to this tech in other settings, such as on their phones or in shopping malls. As businesses recognize you coming into stores and coffee shops, 
At what point do our expectations fall to the point that the extension of the government into the area becomes less problematic? In other words, why would Americans expect not to be scanned by the police if they come to expect it from, say, the customer loyalty program at their favorite coffee chain? This prediction about the gradual normalization of facial recognition is something you hear from the industry, too. Here again is Terry Hartman from Cognitech. If organizations like casinos, security at stadiums are putting in this technology at a level that embarrasses the police where they don't have it themselves, that puts pressure on them. The flashiest booth at this convention belongs to NEC Corporation of America. It's a major supplier of still photo facial recognition. They say they have not yet sold any real-time systems to American police, but executive Benji Hutchinson says a few departments are starting to window shop. I can't say which ones, but it's been the large cities that you might imagine, some of the large coastal areas. One sticking point, Hutchinson says, is that American cities often don't have enough of the kind of high-def digital security cameras that you need for facial recognition, though he says that may not matter in the long term. As if to illustrate his point, a body camera clipped to a nearby mannequin starts beeping. Is that me or is that... No, that's this thing, yeah. You never know what's beeping. Oh, it's matching someone, okay. A body camera that NEC has on display has recognized a passing face. Hutchinson predicts this is how the technology will come to American streets, by piggybacking on the thousands of new body cameras that departments are buying for their officers. At first, he says it'll just be used as a way to recognize the faces of innocent people and blur them out. But it won't stop there. I think the second step is obviously they're going to look at ways to implement facial recognition against known or suspected terrorists or people who are wanted. That'll be the obvious next step. And it is a pretty simple leap. The question is, which law enforcement agency will be the first to take that leap? Hutchinson predicts it'll likely be a deep-pocketed federal department, such as Customs and Border Protection, which is already testing facial recognition at passport control in airports. And as he mentions this, two CBP officials stop by the NEC booth, and the company's sales team scrambles to show them what the body cameras can do. Martin Costi, NPR News, Washington. We're not scientific at all. Passed by trees flowers, fields of corn, we don't even see it. The white supremacists go to the bottom of the ocean and study one grain of sand, bring it and put it under a microscope. The black person passes by and say, what are you doing there, Ralph? See, I'm studying this grain of sand that I got 8,000 feet from the bottom of the ocean. And what are you studying a grain of sand for? I'm studying it because it's there. And I'm going to find out why it's there. And I'm going to find out everything about it, how it got there, what it does while it was there, what it can be used for by me. To dominate you. The threat of climate change can leave you feeling powerless, but what if you could fight climate change with a climate hack? 
Climate hackers, as they are called, argue that efforts underway today to curb emissions will still leave us well short of goals that have been outlined with the Paris Climate Agreement. They argue we need to be more proactive in our approach to the problem. Take, for example, solar geoengineering. It seeks to actually reduce temperatures on Earth by deflecting some of the sun's rays away from our planet. It is a controversial approach to some who fear its unintended consequences. Others see great promise in it. And as part of our project adaptation, we're giving the idea a closer look. Canadian physicist David Keith is at the forefront of solar geoengineering research. He is a professor of engineering and public policy at Harvard University. He's part of Harvard's solar geoengineering research program. And David Keith joins us from New York City. Hello. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. Why do you think we need to be exploring the possibility of solar geoengineering? Because there's at least some prospect that uh, a world with serious emission cuts and solar geoengineering might have less human and environmental risk than a world only with emissions cuts. So maybe to push back on something you said right at the beginning, this is certainly not climate hacking. And, and nobody who's sensible thinks this is an excuse not to cut emissions or a substitute for them, but it might be a way to reduce climate risks. Okay, so let's talk about um, some of the ways this happens. Your team will actually be doing um, a test. You're launching a high-altitude balloon later this year. What are you doing? Uh, Probably next year, probably not this year. It's one of many things we're doing. That is to understand some of the way that uh, some particular aerosols in the stratosphere might interact with the chemistry of the stratosphere in ways that might cause, say, ozone loss. So to understand better the ways that uh, these chemicals, say calcium carbonate or sulfuric acid, uh, uh, alter, alter the ozone layer and how much light they absorb. Okay. And, uh, and what would you be looking so that you see if they absorb light and what they would deflect that kind of, that some of the heat away? Yeah, but maybe it's important to say this is not a test of geoengineering. So, so the, you can't test full-scale geoengineering. It makes no sense to do that. What we're doing is part of the normal thing that geoscience does, which is to try and improve our models of the way, say, the stratosphere works by real-world experiments that test specific questions that then would improve the models, and those improved models could help us better understand what the risks of solar geoengineering might be and how effective it might be. Okay, so more of an experiment. What Can you tell us other methods of solar geoengineering that researchers are looking at? So I would say, I mean, first of all, what is it? The, the idea is that humanity might reduce some of the amount of climate change, not just temperature, by uh, altering the Earth's radiative balance directly. And one example would be by putting reflective aerosols in the stratosphere. It's also possible to uh, perhaps alter the reflectivity of some marine clouds. It's conceivable this could be done in space as well. There are a variety of methods, but they all really share the same underlying fact. They won't deal with the problem of putting CO2 in the atmosphere. We have to stop doing that. But they might reduce climate risks, and not just globally, but on a regional basis. And, and so um, th- what, what might they do to the temperature of the Earth? Well, that's probably one thing we can say with high confidence. So, so you can say with some certainty, I think it's not an exaggeration, that solar geoengineering would enable the world to be highly confident of reaching the 1.5 degree centigrade uh, stretch target of the Paris Agreement. So a combination of emissions cuts and solar geo could reach that with confidence, a confidence we can't have if we do emissions cuts alone. But that's kind of an oversell because global temperature is really just a proxy for all sorts of things humans and and the natural world actually cares about. So the local extreme temperatures or the availability of water 
or sea level rise or uh, extreme storms. And so the question is, how well does solar geoengineering actually work to reduce those climate risks on a regional basis? Okay. And the only way to find out is to do some experiments and check the modeling. Yeah. Actually, experiments don't tell you anything meaningful about that. For that, you have to turn to global models, the same global models as we use to try and understand what the impacts of increased carbon dioxide will be. And so we've been doing that. For example, there's a suite of 12 models that have all been tested, sort of basically all the world's climate models, for uh, uh, solar geoengineering experiments. And when you uh, try using solar geo to cut the total rise in temperature in half, what we find is that uh, in essentially every region of the world, in every region, extreme temperatures and temperatures are reduced. But more than that, so is the change in the hydrological cycle. So uh, CO2 tends to make uh, 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 the, the dry drier and the wet wetter. That's one of the fundamental problems of climate change. And it turns out that solar geoengineering does a surprisingly good job of reducing that. So in every one of the regions that we look at, uh, solar geoengineering tends to return the, the hydrological cycle towards pre-industrial. So, so making the places that got drier a little bit wetter and the places that got wetter a little bit drier back towards pre-industrial. And that's a really terrific thing that, that promises to significantly reduce some of the climate risks that people care about. Okay. Well, David Keith, I want to bring someone else into this conversation. Danielle Tsitso is an associate professor of atmospheric chemistry at uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He has expressed some concerns about some of this. Uh, he joins us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hello. Good morning, Anna Maria. Thank you for having me on this morning. So um, what what are your concerns? So I think that uh, much of what David says is, uh, is correct, but it, it doesn't tell the full story. And so um, one of the things that your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with is that uh, greenhouse gases are, are leading to global warming, but that uh, at the same time, we have been putting particles into our atmosphere, and those have been influencing uh, our climate, as well as creating clouds, which also in turn influence our climate. And right now we acknowledge uh, the addition of particles and, and the formation of, of clouds because of our activities is one of the largest uncertainties, if not the largest uncertainty in climate change. And so my major concern is that by uh, changing particles yet further, that we are going to be having unintended consequences. And so uh, David's statement about that we're, we'll have a high confidence of, of a known temperature change, I think is a bit premature. Um, it's much more likely that there's going to be uh, unintended side effects, that, that we don't know all of the dynamics of this problem, um, all of the chemistry of this problem, the transformation that these particles will undergo in the atmosphere. And so uh, all of those things lead me to believe that, that this is highly uncertain. Uh, and uh, beyond that, there's also some side effects that I think we'll be also talking about. Such as? Well, uh, David mentioned one of them, which is that, you know, when we've seen additions of particles to the stratosphere before the upper level of the atmosphere, that we've uh, also seen ozone loss at, at the same time. Um, as I just mentioned, particles often spawn the droplets and the ice crystals that clouds form on. And so uh, one thing that will go hand in hand with any addition of material to the atmosphere is a change in precipitation. Um, you know, possibilities of higher precipitation in regions and, and lower precipitation or droughts in regions. Um, another if, thing that can I just uh, can I just interject? Oh, um, you say particles. Are there specific uh, particles that are of concern for you? Or are you talking about any particles? Are there specific chemicals, that, the chemical compounds? Are there specific? Yeah, is absolutely. it sulfates? What is um, it? 
Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of the proposals for uh, you know so-called geoengineering have have been addition of sulfates to the atmosphere, and more recently, groups like David's have proposed um, using different materials. He mentioned calcium carbonate to the atmosphere. Um, but there's a lot that are known about these materials uh, already, just from simple laboratory studies on the ground that that show that um, that that these materials, especially sulfates, can deplete ozone. Um, and there are great unknowns about how some of the other particles will affect ozone and and what they might do to things like cloud formation and precipitation. I'm going to throw in another uh, little wrinkle here uh, because there have been concerns that this could all be co-opted by people with other agendas, among them the so-called chemtrail conspiracy theorists, um, people who believe plumes we see in the sky, trails from airplane exhaust are actually toxic chemicals that have been sprayed there. uh, Here's a clip of a YouTuber named Mark Dice. Chuck Norris is now taking on chemtrails. He just published an article for WorldNet Daily about sky criminals and addressing the dangers of geoengineering. So let's take a close look at his article and at the actual admitted geoengineering experiments and disasters. David Keith, I'm asking about this because people um, uh, who, who talk about this have lumped your work in with the conspiracy. How does that affect the debate? It's hard to know, but there's no question it affects it. So my colleagues Dustin Tingley and Gerdaut Wagner have done some really high quality polling and uh, about 30% of Americans believe this. And of all the tweets in history uh, that have dealt with geoengineering, the majority have dealt with chemtrails. So, I mean, the number one thing is just it's hard to know how we have a functional democracy when really significant fractions of the population, 20 or 30 percent, believe things that are just nonsense. I mean, that 9-11 was an inside job or, or chemtrails, and often actually those are the same people. It's a really disturbing thing. And the level of anger and hatred that I think comes probably from disempowerment is profound. I get really ugly death threats, anti-Semitic hatred. Uh, it's pretty disturbing, and I think it will affect the debate because it's many more people talking about this non-existent thing, chemtrails, than about solar geoengineering. And, and Daniel, so um, how much of the debate is about fears as opposed to um, a real scientific concern on risks? Boy, you know, uh, this is a difficult question to answer because, uh, you know, we work as scientists and engineers on on these problems. And and so, uh, you know, I I leave a lot of this to the the social scientists. Um, I I guess I would have to sort of take off my scientist hat for a moment to answer the question. And and I could say that, you know, I I completely agree with David when when we look at folks um, that are dealing with things like chemtrails or concerned about chemtrails, which, you know, sort of dates its history back to the Vietnam War and Agent Orange, but it's become perverted now and and misunderstood. It it is not a real phenomenon, as David pointed out. You know, you you have to sort of fight against that when you when you look at the scientific goals. Um, You know, I would say that that one of the fears and, and one that I think has some basis is actually you know, taking some of this uh, understanding, this this very inexpensive um, possible solution to increasing temperatures, um, and using that as an excuse to continue to emit CO two into the atmosphere. And I think that you know, as scientists and engineers, that's the one that's maybe more concerning to us. Um, you know, here in in the U.S., seeing folks that are in our government that deny that climate change is due to human activities, but are now supporting geoengineering. I think those are the the bigger fears that we have context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast 
hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, May 12th. 2018 so i have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in dial in if you have thoughts you would like to share the number 6417153640 the code 5649439 Pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Few things to share before we get to listeners. Uh, we are listener supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, you can visit my blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. When you hit the blog, my PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop me an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Huge thanks, appreciation to all of the folks, cows, listeners who have supported nearly a decade <clears throat> of counter racist broadcasting. I hope the program has helped non-white listeners, black people get a better understanding, accurate understanding of what racism, white supremacy is, how it works. I hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. With that, a few other things that I wanted to make sure shared before we get to folks who dialed in. <clears throat> uh, of course, start every program incidents of racism, white supremacy from yoga class. I can give a follow-up on one incident. <clears throat> I'd said before, another way you can support the cows via my wish list at amazon.com. It is under Gus T. Renegade. It's also linked at my blog. Uh, huge thanks to all the folks who've nabbed items uh, from the wish list over the last uh, decade or so uh, has been tremendously helpful. Uh, I'm super, super grateful. Uh, from my wish list, I got uh, cork yoga blocks, which I absolutely adore. They are super supportive and I love them. They're super high quality. The only thing <clears throat> is that these cork yoga blocks really stand out when I go to take class. Uh, I am the only person every time without fail with cork yoga blocks and uh, people who, you know, take a lot of classes and like the instructors, they recognize like, oh, cork yoga blocks. Those are really like people, you know, they rec like, oh, those are really nice. They're high quality. Like, wow. Hmm. Uh, and they don't have cork yoga blocks at the studio. So it stands out even more to already be a nigra in the system of white supremacy. You're already under surveillance. So then to have additional things that make you stand out, like if I had known this prior to that maybe would have impacted my decision to 
have cork yoga blocks on my wish list. But anyway, I go to class and I mentioned before that I went uh, with my cork yoga blocks. I came around the corner and a suspected racist white woman, uh, her eyes were just huge and she looked super startled. And she said, oh, I thought you had bricks. Those are just cork yoga blocks. I remember I said, you know, menacing Negro about to be arrested for having bricks. Thought he was going to kill someone and rape a white woman with a brick. Anyway, I go into class today, this morning, and the person at the counter, yoga instructor at the counter, recognized, oh, wow, you have cork yoga blocks. Those are so nice. I love it. Yes, that's why I brought them to class. Yes. So the suspected racist from before who was startled, like, oh, my God, nigga with a Brick is coming to kill us and rape me. Uh, she walked by. She starts laughing. She goes in the class. We're going to the same class. So we get in class, and she is on the row, like, behind me. But I make sure there's ample space so that there will be no kicking or anything else. I got my code together. And I'm in the corner, like I said before. So anyway, I'm putting my mat down and trying to get my – I have, of course, have my counter-racist T-shirt on. And the suspected racist, she said, oh, yeah – I saw you, remember, I saw you, and I thought you were carrying bricks into the building. I said, of course, yes, I remember. And said, oh, man, I'm so silly. And she walked away, and I was thinking, racist, racist. But yes, that did happen uh, today. Second, I got lots of yoga stories for days, as many as you would like to hear. So uh, I on, what day was that, Wednesday, uh, we had... Uh, admitted racist Anna Brown Griswold on the program, I made a compensatory investment request that she fund my yoga training. I will, I am, I have decided that I want to take the yoga teacher training so that I can be a yoga instructor, although I am not going to teach here because that would require me to, uh, I can't, I, I think help would be understating because you would like be required to like touch and massage and do a lot to people that I would regard as racist. So I would not want to teach here, but that would mean uh, from the information that I got that I would be able to go anywhere in this part of the world and teach yoga. I would definitely be down to teach black people, uh, even non-white people, but I would really, really, really want to teach black people. Uh, So I made a compensatory investment request to get Anna Brown Griswold, she agreed to pay for my yoga teacher training the day after she agreed to do so. Gusty won a yoga scholarship uh, for, I think it's 500 bucks. I think they might have been even practicing racism there because I think it might have been listed at a thousand. But whatever it is, uh, $500 to apply. I re- At this point, I guess it's not that in my mind, it's not that big a deal because the suspect or admitted racist is footing the bill anyway. So whatever, whatever scholarship that I get is basically helping this white woman by reducing her bill. So anyway, in the letter uh, from the white woman who says, you know, congratulations, she got, you know, the scholarship for teacher training. That's great. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I had mentioned that I've been taking, you know, a huge volume of classes at the studio I'm at now. They have, uh, a challenge to see if you can take uh, 30 classes, 20 classes, or 10 classes in a month. I did the 30-day challenge, and May 12th, I am on, I've already taken 25 classes. So I told, I mentioned this in my scholarship application uh, that, you know, I've been taking a, a huge volume of classes because I've enjoyed my practice so much. And she said, 
the word I've told you about before. She said, you have inspired me to do more yoga. Word I've been, word of the year thus far, repeated all the time. Uh, I even have more yoga stories, but I will stop there. Save them for another time. The segment on the Young Turks. Talked about them for years on this broadcast and a distinguished, refined brand of white supremacy that they have. The segment where they were talking about the race soldier who went to pay these white supremacists to kill the neighbor and all of that in that segment the reason why i did the rewind sometimes i'll do the rewind it'll be really obvious the reason why i did the rewind there and i was so offended and or not offended not offended incorrect word my apologies i thought that was such an appalling such a glaring or should be glaring example of their white supremacy racism and the way that they broadcast they said what kind of logic is that i'm paraphrasing what kind of logic is that, Sink and Anna Kasparian? That you're just going to kill this guy and take his property without a deed? What kind of logic is that? Who does that? And I'm thinking, that is about the history of real estate in this area of the world as it relates to Nigra property. That is about the whole history, about the last good 170 years of Negro real estate in this area of the world. Now, they don't always kill the Negros, but man, Wilmington on Fire, Chris Everett, one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. I think that is exactly what he talked about. Killing a whole bunch of Negros and running them off and swoop, we come in and take their property. No deed required. Elliot Jaspin, one of the best books that I've read, guest on the program 2010. That's what his book is all about. And white man, suspected racist, he said that this sort of thing, Rosewood, as many as you need, Black Wall Street, as many as you need, these sort of things, these purges, white terrorism happened more than 250 times, minimum, minimum, 250 times. So I, it's not surprising. That's white supremacy logic. That is the whole history in this part of the world of white acquisition of black property. Andrew Carl, we can just keep listing these. I got a bunch of these too. Yoga stories and white theft of black property. Andrew Carl, when the land was ours, that's what his whole book is about. White theft of black property and a whole lot of it is yep we go in we kill the negras and we take the property no deed required yep doing the exact same thing that he reported that's why i replayed it and i never take the position that whites like anna kasparian and sink or sink perhaps he is not classified accepted as white but the way that that show functions in my view it strongly supports refined white supremacy racism but I take the position that I think these folks know that if I am an ignorant victim of racism, white supremacy, they have better education resources than I do. They for sure know that history. That's why we did the rewind there. Continuing. Early in the clips, there was a segment about a non-white, non-black author who has a new book about a white woman adopting a black child after the black mother 
dies or is killed or something gruesome has happened. Negro trauma drama sounds like. That's entertainment. I was thinking of the hate you give. That is new level of entertainment 21st century, right? Okay. In between. Oh, so I played that and I played the segment on uh, Devante Hart, the young black child who got a lot of attention during the uprising in Ferguson. Uh, he was fo- uh, photographed hugging uh, an enforcement officer and now his uh, white lesbian uh, abducting race soldier parents, put that in quotes, uh, they killed the entire family. Allegedly, it looks that's what basically they have concluded. That's what it seems to be. That seems like the most probable uh, conclusion. It's in that segment where they said that they found a shoe with skeletal remains in it. In between those two, I deliberately put those two clips together. In between those two, there was a segment where a female was speaking and she had been asked, you know, what's going to solve the problem of racism? And she said, I don't know. But until white women start having black babies, that was Claudia Rankin. Now, I had played that entire interview on this program before 2015. I'm sure if we have people who were listening to the cows in 2015 and you're listening right now, you might remember when I played that segment, because it generated quite a bit of discussion, especially when people were like, oh my gosh, a black female said that? And Claudia Rankin gets a lot of attention. She is also someone that a lot of whites, race soldiers, will point to and say, oh yeah, that's a black leader. She is an expert on racism. She has a book of poetry on racism, white supremacy. It got a lot of attention. I think there was a black person who was reading her book of poetry behind uh, President Donald Trump when he was on the campaign trail. But anyway, that was her. And I played that clip. I thought about her in that moment. The system of white, if you don't understand racism, white supremacy, everything else that you understand will only confuse you. Next. The segment where they were talking about the facial recognition and they said that this software could be used in crowds to find known troublemakers. When we're talking about, I mean, extraordinary evolution in technology, real-time facial recognition, and the language that is employed is known troublemakers, not wanted felons, not escaped prisons, excuse me, escaped prisoners, menacing Negroes with bricks. No, known troublemakers. That is really vague. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes you call troublemakers people like Nelson Mandela. Maybe the person isn't exactly a criminal, but they are a troublemaker. Shout out to bugging out. Do the right thing. I will stop there uh, for this broadcast. If we could have no metaphors, uh, frequently racists employ metaphors deliberately to spread confusion. Uh, I am a big advocate of really scrutinizing metaphors because often they even reveal more than the speaker or writer intended. That said, on this broadcast, if we could not use them, uh, as I said, racists frequently spread confusion with the use of metaphors and insisting that two different concepts are identical, equivalent, and often they are not. That is a major 
uh, form of white supremacy, racism, and deception. Victims of white supremacy, including myself, we are still learning and we've been exposed to this conduct for centuries. Uh, often, since we are still learning and confused, often we have not come to conclusions on particular subjects, which is fine, but it means sometimes that we do not have logic to articulate our views and sometimes we will substitute a metaphor to explain ourselves and often it just adds to confusion. So if we could please be mindful, really make an effort not to use metaphors on this program, I will prompt about that. Thank you kindly. If you could take uh, about five minutes to share whatever thoughts, commentary that you have, that would be great. Uh, that would make sure that everybody gets at least one opportunity to share. Uh, and then if you have additional comments or questions, we can get you later in the broadcast. Uh, also, if you could please use your mute button, that would be super appreciated. Uh, just helps preserve the audio quality of the program. Uh, we don't want folks having to uh, fight to speak over a lot of unnecessary background noise. Uh, you can just mute your line, unmute when you're ready to speak, and then mute yourself again. That is super, super helpful. Thank you kindly. Uh, with that, uh, we'll go ahead and get to the first few folks who dialed in with a hand up. Uh, if you have commentary that you would like to share, line should be open. Proceed. little bit slow getting my switchboard to move. There we go. Sorry about that. All righty. If you dialed in with the hand up line, should be open. Yes, sir. Thomas in New York. How you doing this evening? Right poorly, I know. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, don't be throwing um, no bricks at white women. Gus, you know better than that. You already done laid on the crowd floor and started crying, man. Now you walk in with bricks, um, disguising them as yoga blocks. You know, you're going to be put on a list. Um, you know, white women have been having black babies for thousands of years. I mean, I, I don't, I don't even, I, didn't, I heard that and I said, what is she talking about? Um, and white people cannot adopt black children. Uh, I believe that on this show we call it abduction. They abduct black children. Um, your rewind with the young Turks. Uh, when you see, I thought instantly I was thinking, man, it's that destiny. Like, I mean, are these people serious? Like, <laughs> you know, let, to add to your list, let's not forget Asada Shakur's grandmother uh, on the huge beach um, front um, piece of land, and it was taken from her by white supremacists. Um, the Voyou racist family in Britain. Um, she wore one of those, somebody wore a black or more brooch or something <laughs> where they went to meet her to, to, I guess, to show her her place. Um, you know, adding melanated, adding melanin to this family. It just, and I know we, you know, we don't talk movies, but I just keep thinking, get out. And, um, you know, I wonder if Miss um, Markle is going to be the body that the queen is going to be in. Um, you know, that, that's what I keep thinking. Um, and you, um, the clip you played, man, this one, you know, when you talk about stereotypes, remember LePage, um, I believe the governor of Maine responded to his, um, state's opioid problem. He called the drug deal is D-money, smoothie, and shifty. You know, um, when I look at all these racists, I mean, you know, the, Cosby's the, 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 Cosby's the one that went to jail. Um, but, um, I mean, 
Schneiderman, Letterman, Weinstein, Al Franken. I start to see a trend here, just like I think D-Money, Smoothie, and Shifty. That sounds a lot like black people to me. Um, you can add Woody Allen, Mount Halpern, Matt Lauer, Brett Ratner. I mean, this sounds like um, a lot of white people who um, fall under the, they designate themselves as Jewish um, that are doing all of this, and none of them are going to jail. Um, that's another trend that I'm seeing as well. Um, the last part I want to end with uh, here is facial recognition technology. Uh, a stadium with 60,000 people in China, it took their facial recognition technology two minutes to just pick out one person and the police to grab them. And uh, I believe it was for like a death. It wasn't even for like he killed someone or some shot, you know. Um, so they have a social credit system in China. Uh, it's going to be called... Um, it's called social exclusion or social inclusion in Europe. And here in America, it's going to be called surveillance capitalism, in my opinion. Um, the troublemakers, you know, everyone thought that we were going to get a chip or barcode, but it's really just going to be your face. Um, it, um, the new Whole Foods, Amazon owns Whole Foods with their facial technology, um, with your Amazon Prime account, you can walk into the Whole Foods take whatever you want and walk out and discharge your Amazon Prime account. You don't pay anything. So um, this facial technology um, is very, very prominent. And um, the people who are programming this technology are the white supremacists. There's not a lot of black people working at Google and Facebook and all these companies that are making this technology. So they're programming this with the same biases they have themselves. How, how can you teach a computer it's learning algorithms that, the, that these computers are using. How can you teach a computer facial recognition technology without teaching the computer to be a racist? You're going to teach it to recognize a face the same way you would. And this is why black people in particular, based off of the fact that we are already going to be, have those biases added into the computer, the cameras are going to watch us twice as hard in the store. You know, it might let the white person, you know, walk in and say, he's all right. But me, you know, hey, I'm going to watch everything he does. He might put something in his pocket. You know, the computers are going to be making these, these decisions based off of the facial recognition technology, which already has the biases built into it that the white people who programmed it had. And it's going to be terrible, and this is what's coming. On the last thing I want to say on this facial recognition technology, I saw a video today where they had a George Bush, the ex-president, the, the second George Bush, and his face, they took an interview he did on Facebook, or, you know, an interview from Facebook that he did, uh, from, on YouTube that, they, that he did, took a still image. Now, the guy sitting in front of a camera in his house, the camera's looking at him. He's making facial movements, like his lips are moving. George Bush move face, lips move exactly like his. So they, so they could take your face and superimpose it on someone else's face and have the lips move when this guy blinks his eyes, George Bush eyes blink, when he raised his eyebrows, George Bush eyebrows raised. So, I mean, pretty much they could also use the same technology to make us commit crimes that we didn't even commit, these places we weren't even at. And I'll be my line, Gus. Thank you. Uh, Asada Shakur, uh, that another great one to add to the list, but uh, her families being victimized, their property being stolen, that is included in Mr. Andrew Carl's book, The Land Was Ours. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, land should, line should be open. Proceed. 
I'm reloading uh, my switchboard just because it seems like it's taking an unusual time for the lines and what have you to open. So give me one second if it's uh, if you had a hand up and have not been able to to speak yet. Okay, seems I think it's yes. Clicking now. Hello, can I be heard? Heard, heard both ahead, of you. Thank you, Red. Go proceed, Puff. You okay? Uh, greetings, everybody. Uh, this is Puff. Uh, just wanted to make a couple of comments. Um, first comment is about the uh, the opioid crisis that uh, has been named on TV and everything. Uh, I think it's way worse than what people are putting across on the media. Um, in rural towns, uh, funeral processions are so, the medical examiners are so overwhelmed in the rural counties that, I mean, the white people are just, they, I mean, they are overwhelmed by this crisis. Uh, in the rural counties, the medical examiners are so overwhelmed, they just start uh, storing bodies in, I think they said, what is this, the tractor trailers. They, they are so overwhelmed in processing uh, bodies because of that opioid crisis. And, you know, when people can't get to pills, they start taking heroin. And so that that is why they are they are overwhelmed with that that uh process i saw i saw a uh and you know this is something that doesn't affect our community of uh blacks but uh with the um i saw on tv that i think hbo had a special where people were just passing out just in cars and in walmart and in places I mean, it, they just kill over, and they just—it's—it's it's bad. It's, it's worse than what they—they are putting forth uh, in the media. And uh, I just want to make that uh, comment. Uh, but the Bill Cosby situation—I uh, believe it's an effort to to strip the black person of their money. In other words, generational wealth. Like Mr. Fuller says, when you go to get that second generation house, in other words, when he goes to pass wealth on his children, he can't because he's paid it all in legal fees. And I'm sure with that, you know, with winning that case, uh, he got to pay these women, you know, so much money. And then it was so many women, you know, whatever. I'm not sure of the uh, monetary uh, stipulations of their case, but I'm pretty sure that he has to pay, you know, in pretty much in the perpetuity, even when he passes away, pretty much, you know, his, his, uh, offspring are left with this huge debt, you know, to pay his estate has to pay, you know, so much to these women, probably into perpetuity. Uh, I'm sure it's not, uh, capped at a certain length of time. And uh, that's all I want to say. Go ahead. Appreciate that, Puff. Uh, 
read if you had uh commentary you should oh i did just want to say really quick you said it uh even though they're uh in the system of racism white supremacy uh it's not possible to have a black community but uh we did have that report a few weeks back that was saying that there is there that there has been reported a huge rise uh in the number of black people using uh opioids uh we talked about that and some people said that they have been seeing evidence that that is true uh that that is not anything that is made up i believe specifically in the uh dc virginia maryland area people reported that they were corroborating that that was true uh red in nevada thank you for yielding to puff um thank you uh and hello everyone thank you for allowing me to share um i also wanted to add of course that being one of my favorite subjects um, to speak about, but I had read an article, I think maybe a couple of weeks back on the cows where um, it was, and I think it's because I've been, I read the uh, Las Vegas Review Journal, and they were talking about how there is that steady um, incline, uh, increase of Black people now being affected by the opioid um, epidemic. So it was a little disheartening for me to read that, but, and I can't get to the article right this moment. Um, I did just some comments on on the clips. Still sick and tired of hearing that the about the that royal family, if you want to call them royal. But the thing that I did um, hear from the interviewer, she said the Princess of Kent, the one who wore that the the black brooch. Um, she said basically something along the lines of the prince of the princess um, is a part of a protected class of people. Um, because she doesn't really know her racism. So I guess, you know, you're protected. It almost, to me, it made it seem like, well, I guess you're protected if you don't have to be around the Negras and the other non-whites. So, so that's kind of, that's what I got from that, her, that part. Um, the, the author of that kind of mother, just, just disgusted. I, I'm, I'm just disgusted. I understand that that's supposed to be a quote-unquote non-white person, brown. It seems like, you know, some people are brown some days and then, you know, not brown on paper, didn't know that there was a box that you can check for brown, but whatever. But, but it's, my commentary on that is that it just seems like everybody knows so much about, like, the uh, racism that affects Black people, but no one knows how to actually resolve it. But, you can, and then definitely, and maybe falling in line with the whole um, the hate you give type of um, genre of books. And um, in one of my favorite uh, types of sayings or whatever phrases used, the author said specifically, um, this it basically referenced, he had said something about, um, well, this is uh, if you're a woman or if you are a black woman hopefully I've gotten across to you. And I've mentioned before how woman and black, it's it's funny, you know, woman automatically means white woman. And so that kind of segues into the part about the Bill Cosby um, segment with Callie Crossley and just the confusion about thinking about yourself as a woman. I don't reference myself as a woman and I try not to, even when I'm speaking with other black females, making sure, you know, I don't use, you know, even like the black girl magic type of thing, but just having that confusion, like this was not a win for black women or it's just crazy. Um, the, this also the segment about the, the drugged out white women with, um, and they're the, them being taught how to raise their children. 
but these are also supposed to be these same women are supposed to be the beacon of I'm sorry, that might be a metaphor. These same women are 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 the best mothers because you don't if you hear about a a bad mother, it's automatically, you know, someone non-white, most likely a black female. But with these white women, the the commentator said something about, you know, it's like being, you know, you're expected to know algebra, but you don't even you weren't even taught addition. But these people are supposed to be, you know, the ones who know everything that doesn't make sense. But the thing that kind of disgusted me was that, you know, this that white woman did not get her children taken away. And when I was back in Ohio, because they mentioned something about a study done by the Cincinnati um, Children's Hospital or the hospital within Cincinnati. And um, I remember hearing of pregnant black females, either in my family or um, people or females that uh, black females that my family members knew of. And they actually there was kind of like this fear of your baby being tested. Some hospitals, at least within central Ohio, they would automatically drug test your baby. So if you, so if there was like weed found in your baby system or whatever, they could likely take your baby away, but not for these white women. Of course not. Uh, The last thing, I I actually got just two other things. Um, The facial recognition, actually um, something that Thomas said, kind of like kind of falls in line with what Thomas said. Um, I remember hearing like this, this um, high level executive talking about how, um, in the future, they were talking about basically innovative ways for merchants to um, sell more products to customers who are within like those loyalty programs that they were kind of talking about in that segment. And how if you have your um, location services turned on for, let's say, if you're at a, a grocery store and you have their card, then if you walk past a product, it would, you're on your phone, it will automatically pop up like a coupon or will let you know that this item is on sale. So it's definitely something that I feel like, you know, there, I wouldn't be surprised if this is that basically that, that innovative way to say, well, you know, these, this, this black person, if they have most of your information, if they could pull your credit report, if they can do all these different things, then, okay, if you have a low credit score, if you don't really have, if you maybe work at McDonald's, if they can do all this, if they're moving towards doing all that, and if you walk past, let's say a white person with a credit score of, of, of 800, then you know, it's the likelihood of you being likelihood of you robbing them is higher than maybe that's maybe what they might be working towards with that technology. And the chemtrail thing, these white supremacists, they are masters of telling you what you're seeing is not real. If you see, and I, I look up all the time now, um, but if you see planes flying, because um, not, I don't live that far away, or I, I guess, well, in Las Vegas, there's um, the Nellis Air Force Base. If you see planes flying and you see that white um, trail coming from them, then, you know, I don't understand why, you know, that's, that's not really harmful for the atmosphere. And, and then you see clouds. And I'll meet my line there. Thank you. Context of white supremacy. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Okay, uh, I'll try to speak a little louder. How's it going, everyone? Uh, this is Black Nine Engineer. I missed the clips and just wanted to comment on some things that I was observing this week. <clears throat> I was at a rally the other day for two uh, non-white black males that were slain by race soldiers in uh, my city, city of Jacksonville. Um, and these were just some things I noticed at the rally. Um, there was a white female 
who was the mother of one of these non-white quote-unquote black males and she was speaking and she said that uh during her speech she said that we have a responsibility in the community <laughs> we have a responsibility in the community to stop gun violence she said gun violence is our responsibility that our children are attacking each other <clears throat> and that um oh so there was uh there was okay so this white woman was speaking and really during the whole speech it seemed like she was trying to blame gun violence on black people instead of white supremacy and this is the danger of you know people procreating with whites in that her son died if, if you've seen him you could tell he was non-white her son was shot by a race soldier but she doesn't want to blame the race soldier for the death i found that very interesting then there was this white man who came on to speak i don't know why he was there but he came to speak about i guess his experience with unsolved murders there are, there are a large number of unsolved murders in jacksonville i think over 70% of the murders in the city or 80% are unsolved. It's ridiculous. So this white man gets on, gets on the podium and he says that if the shoe was on the other foot, Keegan would be in jail. And the whole situation was about this man named Keegan. Uh, Keegan Michaels, I believe was his last name. He was shot in Jacksonville a couple months ago when this race soldier, his neighbor, went to his house and took, brought a gun out and went over to Keegan's lawn and um, began to argue with Keegan over trash, literally trash. This is the official story. The white man argued with Keegan over trash and shot him in his yard. Keegan was in his yard, was shot next to his trash can by a white man who was his neighbor. The neighbor has not been to jail yet. It's been like almost four or five months. Um, Oh, and the race soldier is a literal race soldier. Um, he's connected to the police in the city. So that gives you all the context you need. Um, so the white man on the podium described the situation that uh, the DA for the city of Jacksonville was saying that if the shoe was on the other foot, Keegan would be in jail. That's a direct admission by a race soldier that they understand the difference or what it means to be white, that you can kill a black person and not go to jail. But if a black person killed a white person, they would be in jail. Um, so the white man also said that um, people don't really want justice or that justice doesn't mean much. I don't know what he was trying to say. I'm assuming he was practicing racism. Then he detailed the death of his wife and it was very graphic. Um, he described it in terms of her lip was split, jaw broken, blood in lungs, curdling, quote unquote. I don't know why he had to be so detailed about how his wife was murdered. Uh, probably white culture, um, very erotic in terms of uh, violence. They, they eroticized violence. So I think that might've just been white culture coming up. It was a very long 10-minute speech. 
It was very paternalistic. He spoke way too much and way too long. This white man spoke more than any other, anybody else, more than the other black people, the persons, uh, the, the, the mothers of the black children that were killed. It, it didn't make any sense why he even had the microphone. Um, I was surprised to hear a non-white black female who was speaking. She specifically said white supremacy and white supremacist. So she actually called out what was going on or the system. And it, this isn't a mixed crowd, black and white people, about 50, 50 to 60 people. Um, and there was someone from the New Black Panthers at the event. And during his speech, he said black power multiple times. Black people did not um, uh, repeat the chant. They repeated chants that required them to sing and clap. Um, I would consider these slave spirituals in most sense, in most cases. But when the topic of black power and just repeating the words black power came up, black people were incapable of repeating those words. Only about two people, myself included, were actually saying that. I suspect it's because there were a lot of white people in the area and white people tend to disarm black people from being proactive and um, doing things that will help uh, the community or um, reinforce positive uh, black self-respect. And um, from what I just saw with the new Black Panther uh, uh, person that was there, the black people were very uncomfortable with someone that was very openly pro-black, quote unquote, speaking. And uh, that is all I have for now. Interesting observation. All the sloganeering that was going on uh, reminded me of uh, Stupid Talk, Crazy Talk, Neil Postman's book that we read, Crazy Talk, Stupid Talk, I reversed it, uh, that we read right at the end of 2017. He had a lot to say about uh, sloganeering. I think that might have even been one of the slogans that he mentioned specifically, Black Power. Uh, other folks that dialed in with a hand up, if we have not heard from you at all, uh, the number again, 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If we've not heard from you at all, proceed. I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi, good evening, Jeff. Good evening, all the callers and listeners. Uh, this is a software developer in Wisconsin. I, I'm just wanting to remark on something that Thomas said about Meghan Markle and the and uh, the he felt like um, it reminded him of Get Out, right? He felt like the Queen would be wearing her body pretty soon. Um, I've had this a similar thought in that I think that the um, quote-unquote royal family is used to sort of be a beacon of white supremacy. They're sort of uh, used as a as an sort of an idol, if you will, of white supremacy. And I think that the Meghan Markle uh, marriage is is a signal to other white people um, that they need the genetics. That's what I think. I Maybe that sounds crazy. I don't know, but um, 
I've been thinking that for a while, that they need the genetics. Their birth rates are low, their death rates are higher than their birth rates, and they need a way to um, to continue their system and to continue populating the earth with white people. Um, I really am very emphatic about non-white people, especially black people, willingly handing, handing our genetic material to them, whether it is uh, through um, these, these uh, genetic tests or whether it's through sexual intercourse. I am just really adamant about that. Um, I do not feel that that is correct. I think that's one thing that we have control over that we could stop doing immediately. Uh, it's been proven Henrietta Lacks. You know, they've used our genetic material for things before, and they'll probably continue to use our genetic material uh, incorrectly. Uh, that's all I have to say. I'll mute my line. Thanks. Appreciate that. I did just want to make sure I get it. I do think it's uh, very important regardless of how uh, the non-white person's genetic material is exploited. Uh, in fact, from the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, that's from our book club, I think one of her relatives said that her cells were or her genetic material was raped. Uh, and I thought that that was totally accurate. But uh, regardless, Henrietta Lacks and any non-white person who is engaged in any sort of sexual activity with an individual classified as white, the non-white person is the victim. I think that is very important uh, to keep that in perspective because it's not like every non-white person has accurate understanding about the system of white supremacy, what it means to be classified as white, unless I am misinformed. Other folks, we've... Um, thank you for that, Gus. I'm sorry. I just wanted to say thank you for that. I didn't mean to um, make it seem like I was blaming the non-white person, but um, I do. I do feel very strongly about that. Thank you again. I'll mute my line. Many people do. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from uh, at all. If you have commentary, the line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. <laughs> Good evening, Gus. Good evening, family. Just wanted to hit in on a couple of things that you guys have been talking about and maybe one or two things that hasn't been mentioned. But them young turds with that report on um, the attempted hired assassination or, you know, assassination of a black man. Yeah, I think that was really, really foul. Just the way they, right, way they reported it just tells who they are. But I think what was really foul about that story was I mean, the life of a black person, not that I'm trying to put our bounty any higher, but I mean, you, you got a $500 assassination wager. That says very low about us, and at least some coming from a, a race soldier. And then the fact that he can put down a $100 deposit, I'm like, wow, this, these are crackhead prices. It, it, it's crazy. That's all I can really say about that. Um this thing, um, I wanted to bring it up because I realized that it, it ain't being brought up. Is this thing with R. Kelly coming after uh, Bill Cosby them, and hearing you, Gus, say what you said about meeting R. Kelly and kind of getting your own impression about him, I want this to fall on the audience's ears. It's not a, I don't support R. Kelly. What I do support is the attack that's getting ready to happen and what it's going to lead to. The attack on R. Kelly is going to lead to if people haven't heard about the Spotify pulling R. Kelly's playlist 
and pulling him out of all the algorithms that would probably make him pop up in your 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 playlist, whether it had R. Kelly in it or not. What this does, in effect, is going to, if people support this and get on board and say, yeah, do away with R. Kelly, what it's going to do is attack the copyrights. It's going to attack patents. It's going to attack First Amendment rights. And one thing I think if we don't pay attention to these stories the correct way, R. Kelly is a producer, writer, composer, and a director because he does his own videos. He's 100% free of any royalties owed to anybody. Everybody owes him. That should say a lot to our family that R. Kelly, like Michael Jackson, them, they became worth so much that when the time for their copyrights to expire is coming up and these companies don't want to release them, they want that residual income. And this is what I believe the whole R. Kelly springing up about something that if we think about it, we all knew he liked young girls because he brought Ali out. We saw, we heard about him marrying her. We kept buying his music then. So we're guilty of helping R. Kelly get, get away this long. Probably not everybody, but I'm saying for the most part, we all acted as fans. So we paid for this behavior to go on. We should deal with him. He should be dealt with based on whatever his real charges and what can stick and what is proven truthful. He already been to court. He got his day in court. They proved it. I mean, they, they let the man go. They said he wasn't guilty. So the story here is, this is another, right after Bill Cosby, here we got R. Kelly. Then you got girls going on Megyn Kelly's show, on the Today Show, making all these accusations. And we're in a day and age of young people who love to do f selfies to the point they'll take a selfie in a public bathroom with feces floating in the water. They'll record everything. And they ain't got no audio recording, no footage, no video, no nothing. I think that's a bit suspicious. I wanted to bring up about that guy with the chemtrail stuff. It's ironic. You got the opponent and the proponent. Both saying two things that give us clues that they're destroying the atmosphere, experimenting. They don't really know what the outcome going to be. And then the, the so-called anti-chemtrail guy ends by confirming that any chemtrail conspiracies, I guess that would be me, we're, we're somehow screwing up the argument that they both just confirmed in both their so-called supportive debates about why we should be allowing them to geo, you know, engineer the environment. That's crazy. And then, I don't know if everybody caught it, but that guy that was talking, he kept saying geo uh, engineering. He slurred his words so much, it's almost like you don't even know what he was talking about. Almost like he was a drunk person every time he had to say geo engineering. I felt that kind of ironic. And then when you guys, uh, last caller just talked about this, Fred, um, about, um, you know, the Meghan Markle stuff, and you guys brought up the facial recognition. Just to add a little bit of context, more context to that, they're going to fuse that with prediction polling. So basically, we had a guy on our show tell us that in Canada, they were using predictive polling on at the prenatal stage, where they were able to predict the future of this child. So... When you think about that and you guys talk about the Henry L. Lack story, this is where they can actually see who's the next Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and they can stop it before it ever happens. Thanks, Gus, for your time.
appreciate that. I just want to make sure I get in for the record because as a black male, I feel I am accused of things frequently. I am not guilty of anything as it relates to R. Kelly, whether he did anything criminal uh, or not. And my suggestion with regards to counter racism uh, would be speak for yourself. I have no idea what people did, what uh, music they have purchased or not purchased. And I make an effort to not make assumptions about what people have done. But the conclusion that I have come to very firmly, the people who are most to blame for anything incorrect that's happening right now on the planet, R. Kelly or otherwise, are classified as white. I'm not in charge of anything, so I totally reject any sort of complicity, guilt, uh, accomplice status with anything that R. Kelly or anybody else on the planet did that is incorrect. That's it. Any folks that we've not heard from, if you have commentary. Hey, Ron, Gus. Uh, hang, tight, hang tight. Hang uh, tight. We have other people who've not spoken at all. Uh, people that we've not heard from at all. If you have commentary, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Oh, let's get Princess Art first. Lady first. Princess, did you have commentary? Uh, yes. Uh, I'll make it quick. Uh, I've got to go to work in a few hours. Um, good evening, everyone. I just wanted to comment on a few things. Um, uh, I would talk about my workplace uh, situation, uh, but I'm, I don't want to go into that right now. Um, uh, I would just say, I think uh, moving forward for me, in light of this whole uh, Kanye West thing, I'm just, um, I guess I, I would have to say I would have to reconsider uh, any Black person's um, commitment or focus on the problem if they're involved with a white person, like that's gonna be my my measure of whether or not I can take them seriously when talking about racism. Because it's just getting to the point now, it's, you know, um, I was listening to a broadcast um, with uh, three non-black individuals, um, one of them by the name of Ebro, I don't know. I've never heard of these uh, clowns. Uh, and I mean, it, the, the whole conversation was pretty much, you know, you have three non-white people or non-black people talking about black issues. Um, and basically, you know, they're, they're discussing area eight. And from what I was gathering from the character Rosenberg was, it was almost as if he, he made a comment basically talking about um, a couple of the callers that called in uh, that, oh, you know, they must be into some conspiracy uh, theorist stuff. And I think I would uh, have to ask the person, like, if, if that's the case, do you think Dr. Weldon's work is based on conspiracy? Uh, is, it, is, is her work based on uh, conspiracy theory? is Mr. Fuller's work uh, based on that. Um, because basically what I'm seeing right now with these individuals that are, I guess, quote, woke, but they're sleeping 
with white people. I, I just can't take anybody serious. Um, it's just, uh, it's 2018 and you see what's going on. Um, that's just like, I, I don't understand why, um, these incidents at whether it be the Waffle House, your Cracker Barrel, I don't know, do black people cook anymore? Because it's just so frequent. I'm not trying to be funny, but I'm just like, you know, we, we should already, I guess going back to what you're saying as far as us coming to a consensus about things. And I don't think uh, most black people, whether they consider themselves woke or whatnot are, you know, myself included. I don't think we're um, really serious about, um, you know, coming to conclusions about things. But when it comes to Area 8, I, I look at it, you know, even with um, uh, the gay rights movement. I think uh, interracial dating and um, people involved in anti-sexual behavior, that follows the same pattern uh, thought, speech, and action uh, because it, it all deals with sex. So whenever I uh, in, engage in people in uh, uh, vivid debate, it, it, it always draws the same reaction, the same emotional responses. And I, I just realize now that, you know, I, I just can't take anybody serious. Uh, that is involved in that type of behavior. And um, that, that'll be it for now. I just had to vent that. Appreciate that. Remind folks, uh, this is the No Metaphors broadcast. No Metaphors, please, if we could be mindful of that. And no name calling. Uh, in fact, no name calling at all. Uh, in fact, I'm uh, would appreciate if we would not even name call whites uh, on the broadcast because I've just seen the general tendency is once name calling gets going, we got to find some black people because there's always a coon lurking and you just got to let us know that there's a coon. So if we could just not name call at all, I would be super appreciative. Thank you, Mr. Steele. I thank just you did that name call somebody? Uh, Mr. Steele, never mind. Mr. Steele, unless no, I'm serious. I, don't, I, don't I thought I, I thought someone was called the clown. I thought someone was called the clown, but maybe I'm hearing things. I mean, um, I mean that's different though. It's not a muppet. Never mind, Mr. Steele. Good lord. I mean, sorry. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I, I, okay, DGQ. Um. Yeah, I'm. Uh, it's Ken Steele, and I'm calling in from Los Angeles. And um, you know, I I'm currently looking on my Facebook, and there's a video on the Daily Mail. Um, I'm seeing this video without any audio, but it's um, several deputies um, feverishly working to save uh, to use Narcan to save uh, an overdose addict um, who has stopped breathing. So they are bringing out all of the apparatuses. They are bringing out the, um, the drug. Um, you can see that um, this uh, suspected white supremacist is uh, passed out on the floor, um, not breathing. Um, and there are deputies uh, working to, to save uh, the life of somebody who 
uh, is likely committing a felony <laughs> in order to uh, achieve that state. So I'm just wondering, like, uh, um, you know, and I'm, I'm looking at the comments, and I don't see anybody uh, mentioning, um, uh, you know, the fact that uh, that this is uh, that this looks very racist. I mean, there's not a single black person in view of this uh, of this shot, but it just looks like uh, a display of white supremacy if I've ever seen one. Um, and uh, the article is titled uh, "Front Line of the Opioid Crisis." So I guess the drug war is now to save the drug users. Uh, <laughs> Uh, like, you know, I, I'm trying not to, um, I'm trying to just keep it together, um, in, in the midst of all of this. And then, uh, also too many, I, I, I don't want to, uh, uh, focus on, you know, criticizing uh, victims of racism. So I'll just make a suggestion. I, I suggest that, uh, victims of racism refrain from assuming the guilt of, uh, black people charged with crimes by uh, the state, um, by white supremacists. I, I just, you know, would um, also hope that you would respect any not guilty verdicts that are uh, assigned to victims of racism, uh, uh, of crimes that they're accused of by um, by by the white supremacists because, uh, you know, there's just too much of this um, assumption of guilt uh, that goes along with white supremacist narratives and objectives that I'm noticing that we are, uh, that we are espousing. Um, and me being a comedian, I kind of have a, um, a personal uh, stake in this because it's, seems like there's a pattern of jokes being made by victims of racism being used to convict uh, other victims of racism of crimes that they are not guilty of. Um, and it's, these jokes are used as the basis for forming a, a case in what they call the court of public opinion against these people. Um, I noticed it in the case of Bill Cosby. Uh, they used the jokes um, uh, made by a victim of racism, uh, Hannibal Burris. Um, I, I also am noticing it in our, the case of R. Kelly, um, by where they're using, and I'm thinking, you know, it's the Boondocks and Dave Chappelle. So Aaron Magruder and Dave Chappelle, they're using jokes made by these uh, you know, these comedians, these comics, uh, and, um, and they're using these jokes in order to set the stage for making us in the future say things like, oh, we know that Bill, uh, that, you know, Bill Cosby is guilty, or, oh, we know that uh, R. Kelly is guilty. And then in the same breath, we want to compl uh, complain that there is alleged racism taking uh, place in the cases that are going out against these people. I would advise you, victims of racism, if you have any sort of reservations of judgment of these uh, accused, 
you know, just refrain from mentioning it. You know, talk about the, the, the white supremacists themselves. You know, anytime these white supremacists try to get you to start talking about ourselves and start calling ourselves guilty of all sorts of crimes that we're, we're not guilty of, uh, please, just start talking about the crimes that they're guilty of, the crimes that they're admitting to. You had the top lawmaker, the top law official of New York. It, basically, he's a documented uh, a statist and a racist. I mean, like, it, 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 why isn't that the hottest topic of discussion amongst uh, amongst us victims of racism? Why don't we Why don't we talk about all these racist ass teachers that are going around uh, raping black students up and down? Since Mary Kay Letourneau, I remember this has been going on. So why don't we? Why, why is that the hot topic? Why isn't that the hot topic amongst us? Instead of uh, talking about what uh, uh, you know, a victim of racism, Kanye West is saying, you know, this week or that week. Please, let's just work against the psyop. Let's focus on the racist, and you know, let's reserve judgment uh, for these uh, accused uh, victims of racism. And, you know, it's very likely that you could find yourself in the position of the accused. I mean, they have all sorts of facial recognition. They say that we all look alike. So they could use that as the basis to start accusing you of all sorts of stuff that you didn't do. So I'm going to reserve judgment when it's your turn. Um, please reserve judgment when it's mine. And, you know, uh, in the case of all of these uh, notable victims of racism, uh, you know, exercise the same code. Thank you. Appreciate that, Mr. Steele. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we've not heard from at all, if you have commentary you would like to share, line should be open. Proceed. Uh, can you... You didn't sound clear. Maybe you can... If you could give us another sentence. Hello? Yes, we can hear you. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. I'm using the computer. My phone is not available, so I'm using the computer. Um, thank you so much for having the show. They're good calls. Hope everyone's doing as best as they can. Um, I agree with a lot of the sentiments, especially, um, you know, just shifting the conversation to what, you know, the what they call the quote-unquote majority population, the white population is doing. Um, there's plenty of evidence for that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, I think the one of the clips is that Bill Cosby was like a father figure. I don't know who Bill Cosby was a father figure for, for a lot of black people. Maybe I didn't take a sentence when I should have. I have a father. Um, and he just, I think he did a good enough job, you know, as far as fathers go, you know, um, you know, as well adjusted as I can be in the system of racism, white supremacy, a criminal record, college, you know, blah, 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 stuff like that. Um, and so I don't get that at all. And um, another thing I saw on TV, um, I'm here visiting a family, and I was watching this commercial came on for Exxon. And in the commercial, they're at an art gallery, and, you know, art galleries, the background is all white. Um, a white lady, she fixes a picture, of course, most pictures are colorful. So she fixes the, the and this particular picture is very colorful. So she attempts to straighten out the, the picture because Exxon is meticulous in detail. 
So she's, I guess, maybe maybe five, 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 six, I don't know. Not very tall and relatively thin. Then a big, a uh, larger, I should say big, a larger African-American security guard comes to her because, of course, she's touched the picture, which she should not have done. The alarms go off. He comes to her. She really puts up her hands, like, stop, you know, I'm ex-con, we pay attention to detail, blah, blah, blah. So they walk, he's following her, walking slowly, following her through the gas, and, of course, Exxon's wonderful, blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the commercial, she's so meticulous that she wipes this non-existent dirt off the black man. I go, oh, oh, this is a very interesting commercial. And, um... And again, just to reiterate, taking the conversation off of what off of black people to bring up what white people are doing. Thank you. Indeed, you were clear even on the computer. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, big victim. Um, yes. Hello to everybody. Um, uh, I just, I'm going to be real quick. Can, can we please let people, victims, please stop with all the dancing. Please. They they I just seen on Facebook they are out in Oakland trying to do the electric slide to give you the race system. Please. The video, America, all this week, America, this video. Black people saying it's a work of it was a uh, it was a work of genius. Please. Start with all of that. Thanks for letting me share. Context of white supremacy. Other folks uh, that we've not heard from at all, if we missed you completely and you have a hand up, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, Greetings. Can Uh, I be heard? I heard you as well, retired firefighter. Uh, Let me nab uh, Imhan DC first. Yes, sir. Greetings to you, the hosts, the callers, and the listeners. About the chemtrails, I would say that's a very important topic. If we're able to stop the chemtrails, then we'll likely be able to get rid of white people because they need to block the sun from the atmosphere so that they don't die. Uh, they die in heat. They die in the sunlight. Um, there was, it, it happens all the time, all the time. You just, if you just listen to white people, go listen to white people during the day after 10 o'clock. So it's getting warm, right? And around about this time of year and listen to the white people talk about how hot it is and how, how much they're complaining and look how they're kind of sweating and trying to stay out of the sun, trying to get into buildings. And pay attention to the black people. 
I oftentimes I hear a white person say, oh, it's so hot, um, you know, and then complain about the heat and all this other sort of thing. And then a black person say, oh, well, you know, I'm happy the sun's out. I'm, you know, I'm feeling good, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's, it's really important that we solve this chemtrail problem because we can, we could probably solve this white problem. Uh, another thing is, like I had mentioned before, I think it was 75,000, over 75,000 people died in uh, a couple days time. White people died in Europe because of a heat wave. It got a little too hot. Black people would have been able to obviously withstand that. Um, and then if you read a lot of these books that talk about, you know, white people colonizing different areas, it will tell you, well, there's certain areas, most areas, actually, they weren't able to stay in large numbers in those areas because it was too hot for them to survive in those areas. So the, the earth is getting hotter. It's going to continue to get hotter. Uh, and then the other thing. Well, I can't think of anything else. I I really like to solve this chemtrail problem and solve this white problem. Uh, thank you. Uh, retired firefighter. Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Uh, first, uh, well, I, I would I would just uh, add on uh, from the last caller uh, about uh, suntan lotion. Uh, I've never seen a non-white person uh, in a, a suntan commercial. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, uh, well, at least not one that's heavily melanated. Uh, the Hawaii uh, uh, reports uh, about the volcano that seems to, uh, uh, if not uh, stopping from erupting, is spreading uh, on the island, uh, just had a uh, a, uh, a thought on the matter, uh, maybe, uh, in a joking way, almost maybe it's God's raft, uh, against the, uh, white people who, uh, came upon, uh, those non-white people and, and, uh, uh, really just turned completely, uh, into a disaster, their uh, way of, their way of life and, uh, started confiscating the people as well as the land itself. I noticed in all the interviews of the uh, people who lost their uh, their their uh, uh, quote unquote homes, uh, it ends up being a white person, uh, and, and it reminds me of the legendary program that you had years ago. Uh, I, I can't think of her name, uh, but she did such a great job on that interview, uh, uh, talking about the history of Hawaii and how non-white people were mistreated on that island. I just can't think of her name right now. With your good memory, I'm pretty sure you know who that person is, who that person was, uh, that uh, historian, I believe she was. Uh, DCS program uh, today, uh, with the program, uh, the uh, fellows visited a uh, golf course, uh, primarily where non-white black people golf at, and the, uh, the trainer, uh, of course, was a black male, uh, and, uh, there also was a black male who spoke with the, uh, young guys about, uh, having, uh, multiple options, uh, as opposed to, uh, their future, uh, uh, as far as employment or, or different means to, uh, uh, that's going to, uh, be, uh, 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 uh 
the opportunity for them to be successful in life. Uh, I uh, almost by mistake uh, visited a uh, a town hall meeting uh, on quote unquote gun violence. Uh, the only reason why I, I had the interest to go is because Mr. Clark uh, put it on his uh, Facebook and it stated that he was going to be there. He he did not show up there, uh, which I'm not surprised about it. And uh, I was wondering uh, after about maybe five minutes why I was there. Uh, uh, it was a, uh, a typical uh, uh, one of these town hall shows where people are sitting on a stage uh, Dade County Police Department was highly represented in the place, and uh, I sat there for about maybe five, ten minutes and left uh, uh, the uh, the uh, program. Uh, uh, another uh, observation that I had this week was uh, on how reduced the uh, the story on uh, that was on the. Uh, white females who uh who murdered uh uh themselves or well they committed suicide and murdered uh those uh non white children and how uh diabolically uh they planned the whole thing uh and even from the standpoint that I heard on one of your clips that they actually uh uh, uh applied some sort of medication to some of the children, I guess, to, to basically to uh, have them in a, 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 stu- a state of stupidity to where they could not react uh, against what was going to happen to them. Uh, but the story was not projected uh, in the way that it should have been. should have been a lot more attention to it. Uh, one thing I noticed on the news uh, is the sequence that they have on the news with stories. Uh, they would have, uh, I, I noticed there were several incidents of, of uh, violence by law enforcement on non-white black people. Uh, and, and then behind it on the last story, they would have a situation like in Ocala, Florida, where this uh, black female literally handed uh, her uh, baby to this uh, white male uh, enforcement official and in turn, the story uh, captioned that that uh, he saved the baby's life. Uh, I think it's a planned sequence, uh, you know, for obvious reasons. Uh, and uh, my next, uh, my next, my next and last uh, thought was uh, this week was uh, we know uh, on uh, the 19th uh, is the date of this uh, so-called marriage. Uh, but keep focus, uh, May 19th, 1925 was the day that Malcolm X was born. Uh, if not, I, I wouldn't say it's something to celebrate, but it's something to reflect on, uh, read some information on him. If you don't have, if you have it, uh, gain access to it and have some information on him and share, share what, uh, he attempted to do during his short lifetime. Uh, to other non-white people, as opposed to being concerned about uh, uh, the situation that is going to be taking place, uh, that's going to get most of the publicity of that day on television anyway, uh, in the place that's called England. Thank you. That's it.
Appreciate that, retired firefighter. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all. Anybody that we missed completely have commentary? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings to you, Gus. Um, greetings to the firefighter, all the other calls and listeners. Um, I had a couple things I wanted to, to touch on. Um, I don't know if anybody else might have spoke about it because I ended up having to take another call when we first started uh, letting everyone speak after you spoke. Um, but in regards to the real-time face recognition, we actually dealt with that recently on our show, too. And actually, there was an article that I utilized in companion to the one that you had dealt with on in your clips. And it was regarding Britain, because Britain actually started using this sort of technology, real-time face recognition technology. And in the article that I got, it was from, I think, the UK Guardian. They were discussing that, <clears throat> excuse me, in their first, first use of it at a major event, they had gotten like 2,000, I think 2,297 um, hits in, in a crowded area that they used this technology, and that 97% of them were false positives. So um, I could just see the kind of, and then they tried to talk, speak, speak it away and say that um, the face recognition technology, of course, is not going to be perfect. And that was their statement to the fact that it was 97% of their 2,297 people that they rounded up turned out to be false positives. So I could see that taking place here, you know, as they start to roll this out. I could see a lot of black people being shot and killed before, um, you know, due to this facial recognition. And now that the, recently the um, the Supreme Court basically have made a rule of Congress facilitating that cops, it was okay for cops to shoot people first and then find out the situation or what was going on after shooting them. Because as long as they're in fear for their life, then that is more than enough reason for them to shoot and kill a, a suspect. Um, so couple that as far as just uh, the legal system giving them jurisdiction to shoot first and um, ask questions after the fact. And then this face recognition where they're going to be picking out, you know, uh, people who they are calling troublemakers and, you know, criminals. Then put that in perspective. I think there's going to be a lot more ratcheting up of police shootings of non-white people and especially black people. Um, also, earlier today, <clears throat> excuse me, I posted an article on BTR Community about the opioid epidemic because it's an NPR article and I found it uh, quite fascinating. So it says, the $1 fentanyl drug test. Public health experts are encouraging drug users to test their drugs for fentanyl with, one, with a $1 strip. NPR Scott Simon talks to Tracy Green of Brown University about the technology. So I thought about it. When in history did, when black people were going through our opioid epidemic in the 70s and, and um, in the 60s, when did they ever give them any tests that they could make sure the drugs were safe before they use it? So this is just saying to me that they don't mind that white people use drugs. They're trying to help them use the drugs in an optimal way. Um, and also that white genetic annihilation is being taken into this equation in the sense that they're giving them or telling them that they should be using a $1 fentanyl test to make sure that their drugs aren't laced with fentanyl so that they don't OD and die before they can get the Narcan. So um, I just find that to be a, a very uh, telling development in the way that this drug situation, now that white people are the major ones that they're focusing on, focusing their attention on, um, that they're starting to deal with this in this manner. 
the last thing I wanted to talk about was a very, very interesting conversation I had with a non-white black Brazilian coworker, a very beautiful young woman. And we just became friendly as she started working there um, not too long ago, a couple months back. And she happened to tell me a story about her and her husband. Now, this gets a cowbell because she's married to a white Jewish male. And she had told me this story out the blue. We were just saying our pleasantries, good morning, and catching up. And she just happened to start going into this story. So she tells me that her husband had an incident where he was pulled over by the police there was uh, something wrong with his registration on his car. He never got it taken care of because she said he ended up having to do some sort of oral surgery on the day that he was supposed to go handle it with the court. So she just said, I assume he took care of it. I didn't think anything of it. So recently, like maybe within a, like about a month ago, he was pulled over by the police. He had a bench warrant out for his arrest due to the fact that he missed his original court case uh, due to this mouth surgery or whatever the case may be. So he was able to talk his way out of it and he used some government credentials because he works for a government department and they let him go. So she said, um, there goes your white privilege. This is what she told me. She said to him, there goes your white privilege. She said, if that was me, you know, I'd have been going to jail in handcuffs, kicking and screaming and they would have impounded my car. And I said, you know, as you were telling me that story, I thought the very same thing. So then she goes ahead and tells me that, um, Later on, he has another run-in with the police, and of course, he gets out of it a second time as they pull up, you know, this situation with the bench warrant, everything again. So then they make the, he makes a decision and says, "Well, I can't drive anymore, so I need you to basically take me to and from work every day until we get this situation straightened out." So for about a month, she told me she's had to wake up an extra hour early in order to take him to work before bringing herself into work so that they avoid having issues with him and law enforcement and that it had gotten to the point where it was um, just very um, uncomfortable and annoying. She actually talked about it in the sense where she said, um, you know, as, as women, we have to um, take care of, of our men like their children. Um, and she said, that's kind of how I feel about this situation. And I'm thinking to myself, I didn't say anything, but I thought to myself, I said, well, he's a white male. You, you literally should have used the term white supremacy, but I'm, you know, no judgment, VGQ. Um, and, and the fact that you said that, hey, this is how you exercise your white supremacy, not white privilege. And then on top of that, he's abusing you by forcing you to be his, his live-in slave who has to wake up all of this extra early time to go drive him to and from work so that, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't get arrested or, or pick, not even arrested, but stopped because he hasn't gotten arrested once yet, but stopped by the police and basically um, addressing this situation. He's left outstanding for an extended period of time. And now you feel that as the woman that you have to um, basically be his, his, uh, his liaison to staying out of trouble with the law which is the responsibility that's being placed on you by a white supremacist who you chose to marry. And you can't even see the refined, acute white supremacy being practiced upon you within the context of this so-called relationship. So um, I just found it quite telling that um, just her, her perception on what her husband was doing, I thought it was interesting that she did call out a part of it, even though I just, like I said, I think the term white privilege is just non-existent as white supremacy. But then she overlooked the fact that he was using and abusing her, whether she's married to him or not, by not being responsible enough to get it taken care of so that she's not put out. So um, she said that uh, she did end up getting into a discussion with him where he's 
supposedly taken care of it. I guess I'll get an update in the coming week or weeks or so to find out if that was the case. But that's just something that's a little food for thought as far as the context of relating in an inter- intimate relationship with a white person. You never know what you're going to get. And don't just uh, chalk it up to it being anything equivalent to a marriage between two non-white people. Thank you, and I'll meet my line. Appreciate it. Uh, if you could hang tight, Princess, we have other people that haven't uh, shared yet. Uh, appreciate that, uh, Roz. I hope your wife's entrepreneurial business uh, is doing well. Uh, the Mr. Agnostic, if you had commentary, uh, your line should be open. Proceed. Yes, I appreciate that. Um, let's see. I just watched the video today of the non-white black woman was 65 years old, who was assaulted by race soldiers. I counted about like six officers in the, uh, well, six race soldiers in the footage. Uh, And then I find it strange that she's not uh, campaigning to get at least some of them fired. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Also, question, Gus, are you familiar with the website called webuyblack.com? Uh, no. Oh, well, it's the largest uh, online market for black people. Uh, I would suggest that you share that information with uh, the black scholars that you are still in contact with that have written books. Uh, because I haven't seen oh, some books I haven't seen on there or I haven't seen any books by Pam, you know, who created um, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act. And I, I, I definitely encourage them to put their products on there so people can get familiar with their information, the information that they have created for us, or, you know, Organized for us. Apologize. My mind's everywhere right now. Okay. That's about all. Okay. Uh, Unless I'm mistaken, generally, uh, it would seem correct for the person who has information about this website to do the recommending. I would be recommending a site that I'm not familiar with. Yes. Oh, I apologize. Well, encourage you to research it because I, I don't have their contact information. Uh, that That's why I, I suggested it. I apologize. No apologies. Well, I guess I'm I'm giving you an opportunity where you could be active yourself. You could do the same thing that I would be doing. Pam's as a website. You could go to her website, racismws.com. You could just email her and say, hey, Pam, uh, check this out. Gus is ignorant about it, and he is. Uh, check this out. This might be a place where you can advertise some of your books. You can go down the list, any of the other authors that, you know, you think it might benefit them to put their, uh, if they have books or other products, Dr. Curry, anybody else, you could do that. Definitely. I will do that. I appreciate that. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, other folks that we've missed completely. Ivy, uh, if you had commentary that you wanted to share line should be open. Proceed. Hi, yes, sir. Um, thank you, Gus. Uh, greetings to you and greetings to uh, the callers on the line. I had a quick question for you, Gus. Um, I heard you say on a broadcast, I want to say that it was the one with the black Holocaust, something about 
Hitler's black victims or African victims actually was the gentleman that you inter- that you or the I think he's white, so probably the race soldier that you interviewed. But the question is this: I think you said something about that the the Africans who were or just you know the black the black people. I want I want to say I don't know if you said in, in you said in the north they were lighter skinned and they weren't as dark as the other people. And I can't even remember if you were talking about on the continent or here. Well, my question was, the the thing that I thought was that the racist, that they raped the, a lot of the melanin out of the, the, the victims, their, their, their offspring. So when they, when they went over to, to Africa and they, and they stole and kidnapped and terrorized and enslaved black people that when they raped them, you know, a lot of, you know, their offspring, they weren't dark anymore. I thought that the most of them over there um, were dark because I see here in the U.S. you don't hardly see any dark-skinned people. Most people that you see are either brown or light-skinned. And so, you know, that, that was my question. Like, do you remember what you were saying about how some – some black people, they were actually lighter than the people, than the other people? Absolutely not. And I can even give extra context because I don't really understand the question that well. And it did seem like you were, you said you didn't remember quite exactly what it was. And on top of that, those are two separate books and two separate interviews that happened within about three, four months of each other. Hitler's black victims and Hitler's African victims. One is written by a white person, one is written by a black person. So I do not remember the specifics of the broadcast and can't really respond to that question right now. Okay, was the Hitler's African victims, do you know anything about maybe the Africans in the North versus Africans in another place? They were lighter than the ones in another place? Uh, Nope, I'm sure that had a specific context and when it came up, I would have to go back to here like exactly what was being said, what we were talking about to respond to it. Okay, I'll I'll go back and maybe later on I can bring it up again with much clarity. But I wanted to I hope I could be quick with this. Uh with um with Bill Cosby, the the thing about him is that like for me, I don't have to compare him to other rapists. You know, I don't have to compare him to Polanski or anyone else accused of rape because unlike them He's innocent. Like this Constan person, I don't, I don't, I don't have to bring up Polanski. I can talk about the fact that she changed her story six times because the timelines weren't matching up that she was giving because they were, uh, many of the dates were when he wasn't in, in the same state. So she just kept trying like six times. Like that's it right there. And the fact that she told um, someone else that she. Uh, she that she was assaulted, and then the person kept asking her and asking her, and she was like, "No, nah, I wasn't assaulted, but I could I could say that I was. I could lie on a celebrity, and I can get money, and I can open up a business." And then the fact that and the, you know people are are so I'll say I'll say uh, let me let me not say anything in that is uh, denigrating because I don't mean to come off that way, but people are very um, I guess you could say convinced by this deposition because he admitted to giving quaaludes to someone. Well, these people were cokeheads, they were heads, they were crackheads. There is one of his accusers who got quaaludes from someone else, and she got on the stand, and the lawyer asked, Bill Cosby's lawyer asked her, 
who gave her the quaaludes. At first, she said Bill Cosby, but five seconds later, she was like a friend, and then admitted that she uh that she willingly slept uh with, that she willingly had sex with uh Bill Cosby, and let me see how I can say. The reason that she admitted the truth is because she had already told someone else, I quote, got effed up and slept with Bill Cosby. So the fact that these people, they are willingly taking Benadryl, they're willingly taking Quaaludes and Coke and everything else, um, cocaine and everything else, I don't have to compare him to rapists because at the end of the day, and then all these, yeah, you're changing your story six times. It's like if you were raped, you don't have to sit here and change, you don't have to tell one lie at all. And these people, there's a there's a pastor named Ted Haggard or Haggard or whatever his name is, and he 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 took drugs to sleep with a homosexual, to heighten the the sexual arousal. So these people they're taking drugs willingly to have sex. He doesn't have to drug them. He doesn't have to rape them. They are they they you don't have to drug drug addicts. They already do this stuff. They already have done this stuff willingly. And even in his particular case. So I think that it is very unjust to compare him to a rapist when you got people getting on the stand lying six times and, and, and willingly taking all of these drugs that he have given them, just like other people have given them. And yet when other people give it to him, they're not drugged or any of that. They're just supplied with drugs. But then when he does it, then he drugged them when these people have admitted that they willingly took these things because they're drug addicts. And, you know, I, I wanted to say something about the Turks, but I've probably talked too long. Maybe there might be time later, but uh, I'll mute my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gus. Yes, ma'am. Context of white supremacy. Uh, Draftomania, I think she's in uh, North Carolina down in uh, Mr. Reed's part of uh, the world. Uh, Draftomania, did we miss you or did you have commentary? Might just be listening. I thought you had a hand up. Did you have commentary? Just listening? Assume that she's just listening. Any? Did we uh, miss anybody? Anybody that had a hand up that we missed completely? Spectacular. Last uh, 10 minutes uh, in the broadcast, if folks have uh, a final comment that they need to make sure that they get in before we get ready to wrap things up, uh, should be precise, concise, uh, since we don't have that much time. And in case a few people, if they have a question or thought that they need to uh, make sure they get in, other than just Ivy, who said she had, I guess, something with the Young Turks, uh, we should be here. Uh, workplace racism, since we did get workplace racism commentary, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, every Thursday. Workplace racism, uh, tune in. Uh, you can share if you figure out some things that work well to solve your problems on the job. We have tons of folks, even Roz today, in sharing constructive information with other non-white people, black people on the job. Lots of black self-respect. Uh, recognize Roz as well on that one, but lots of listeners uh, put in that effort and try and share with other black people that they meet on the job. Great effort. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, every Thursday, neutralizing workplace racism. Uh, folks have a quick comment they need to get in before we call it a broadcast. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, yes, this is Princess again. I just wanted to apologize that I couldn't, um, I, I'm not able to call in on most Thursdays for workplace 
racism uh, simply because my plantation uh, doesn't provide me with that particular day off or usually I'm having to close so by the time you do your broadcast that's the main reason why I'm never able to call in for workplace racism and um, because I would like to, uh, I'll next time when I have time, um, I did have just thought about an incident that happened yesterday uh, with one of the um, white ladies there that tried to show me white tears because uh, she's been saying and going to people saying that I've been avoiding her. And uh, she's been trying to speak to people about um, you know, why I haven't been talking to her. I don't even walk in the same area as her and just trying to fish for information. But I'll, um, I'll see if uh, I have time uh, to share. Uh, if I'm available Thursday, I'm not sure. We don't have our new schedule. Um, but if not, then I'll try and share next weekend. If you uh, if you have time, uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, a book or 20 pages or anything. But if something happens and you feel like, hey, I'm not going to be able to participate, uh, if you just want to, like, write a paragraph or two, uh, just give like a quick synopsis, uh, then I can read it on the program and folks can share a thought or two on the situation. But just on the little bit that you did share, I was thinking, you know, being you know, as I state consistently asking questions on the job in terms of number one, like what, what do you mean avoiding? Am I diving behind counters uh, and waiting? You know, am I in camouflage, hiding out, you know, in parts of the building uh, so that you don't see me? Like, what are you even uh, talking about in terms of uh, avoiding? Uh, and then I don't know what type of policy, you know, what your workplace is like, but I mean, is that the way that we solve problems? Like you think that there's a problem between you and I. And so you go to all these other individuals to inquire as opposed to just coming to ask me directly, is there a problem? Like that seems like the professional way of an efficient way of getting things done. But I'm sure if you give us more details uh, so that we can get a, a deeper understanding of exactly what happened and where the tears came in, because the weeping white women, that's the hashtag. I said that before, weeping white women use the hashtag uh, that certainly uh, in critical critical aspect of, of what happened. Uh, did anybody else have anything that they needed to share before we roll out? I know Ivy said she had a young Turkish remark. Did anybody else? Uh, can I be heard, guys? Yes. Uh, go ahead, Roz. All right. I just wanted to say briefly, um, I did get to, and thank you, too. I got to order the um, shirt from, from Trav Lyrics, and I wanted to say, um, he was very professional. The shirt is awesome. I can't can't wait to wear it. Um, I won't have the opportunity this coming weekend because actually my son will be graduating from college um, on Thursday and then um, he'll be preparing for graduate school in September. But um, but I can't wait to actually wear it. It looks really great. And like I said, it was very timely. He was very professional. And um, he also makes other shirts too. So I just wanted to throw that out there and just let people know that um, you know, just my experience with him, just to, you know, just big him up for his professionalism and just on just on the black self-respect. Thank you. And um, also, yeah, the, the store is going quite well. Um, I would say, like you said, there's always, uh, no matter what you're doing, even if you're an entrepreneur, you're always going to have some contact with racism in some capacity. 
um, sometimes the, 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 the mistreatment will come from people who look like you too, not just necessarily white folks. It all depends on the context, like you say. So with that, I'll mute myself. Thanks, guys. Wow. Congratulations on the graduation of your offspring. Spectacular. Um, very uh, proud, you and, and your wife. That's spectacular parenting. Tell them to watch the race soldiers on the stage uh, if, you know, they're going to celebrate. Be careful about that sort of thing. Uh, racism, white supremacy does not respect or celebrate black academic accomplishment. Uh, did we miss anybody else have final word they need to get in? Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Uh, we'll get. We'll go the other way this time. So we'll get retired firefighter, and then we'll get Mpandisi. Uh Just wanted to quickly inform uh, the listeners. Uh, I uh, saw. I see where uh, there is going to be a documentary on the tennis great Serena Williams. Uh, I would suggest to proceed with caution. Uh, because we all know that she is uh, involved. Well, I put it. I put it the other way. There is a white male who is impacting her sexually, uh, uh, and uh, this is probably one of the reasons why this documentary uh, is coming out. Uh, so proceed with caution. Just letting everybody know about it. Thank you, M. Handisi. Yes, sir. Can I be hurt? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The, uh, the last thing I just wanted to say was that white people are all over the world illegally. They are not allowed to be here. They're breaking the law being here in the North America area, South America, Africa, anywhere they are. They're, they're there illegally. They invaded. They stayed. They're still invading. It's an illegal act. Everything they do is illegal. Thank you. Abby Hurt. Red in Nevada. Um, I just wanted to quickly say I actually um, I haven't been uh, uh, lively or uh, participating to the live um, book reading the book studies, but I did want to just briefly mention because I've been reading I've been listening to it uh, a little bit as like I've been walking to my gym trying to also make sure to if race soldiers are willing to approach me to kind of be ready for that. But anyways, it's definitely a, an amazing book. So if anyone has not already um, started to maybe listen to um, the invisible man, I, I think that it's, it's one of the most amazing books. And I definitely feel like it is, it's so much better um, to, to listen to rather than the, the last book, definitely very visual. You can, I, I feel like, um, it, it, it definitely is at least helping my, my vernacular. Um, thank you. I'll meet my line. Ralph Ellison is amazing. I love Invisible Man. Top five. Top five. Like, I'm not saying that just to get listeners. Uh, I would enjoy it even if I was. I was enjoying it listening to it by myself. I've read the book many times. Uh, but Can I any, be heard? Thomas in New York. Yes. Um, good evening. So, again, um, Congratulations to Rob. Very good. Um, I wanted to say one thing. Uh, I didn't get a chance to share on Thursday. Um, it's real quick. I was um, I decided to take my lunch break at my desk and um, do some do something I needed to do for myself. So I'm sitting there eating. I never do this. And um, the terrorist comes behind me 
and she's making copies, but I'm, you know, on the phone handling business. And um, all of a sudden, I hear this clicking sound in my ear real loud, and I look up, and she's holding a stapler. So she took the stapler and just started clicking it, like, you know, like, you know, slamming it together just to say, ah, I got you a new stapler, and walked off. And I said, man, <laughs> I'm mute my mind. Thank you. It doesn't get any better than tacky. Uh, Ivy, did you want to get your Young Turk commentary in? Sure, Gus. Did you say that they asked me in an echo? Are you hearing me? Say something else. Did you say that? Um, oh, I did hear it. They... Hmm. Let's see. Okay, try again. Okay, uh, did you did you say that the Young Turks asked what's the logic in killing black people and taking their land? I think the way they phrased it, I don't have the transcript in front of me, but I think the way that Sink said it was he was talking about the race soldier who was going to uh, pay the white supremacists to kill his neighbor. He said, uh, you're going to kill the guy and take his land without the deed? What type of logic is that? I think that's the way that he phrased it. How is how is it illogical when they're talking about, like, what's the relevance of the without the deed part? I think the way that he was stating it, it was supposed to be, you know, that, who does that? That's, you know, that's criminal. That's not the way, according to the law, that you take property. You think you're just going to be able to take this guy's property and get away with it with no deed and, and killing him. I think that's the way that he was trying to state it. Like, oh, my God. I mean, that's just so stupid to think that way. Okay. Yeah. So either way, <laughs> to say, you know, what's the what's the logic in that? It's just interesting that it was re- it was reduced to illogic rather than like instead of how illogical is that what about how savage is that so I just think that that that's that's very um it, it really you know which you would i expect from them I'll put it that way but it it really is is lacking compassion and to just, I mean, that's just so callous, I think is the word that I'm looking for, um, to use illogic rather than, you know, just savage, terrorist, criminal, just disgusting, so and just abominable. But, yeah, that that's it. Thanks, Gus. Absolutely. That is the system of white supremacy. Uh, we did... Our three hours, I am pretty sure our global Sunday talk on racism should be here uh, next Sunday, because that would be the third Sunday in May, and that's when the broadcast falls, so it should be next Sunday. Uh, We'll be looking forward to that. We'll be here in between uh, before then. Uh, If you have guest suggestions, gripes, problems accessing programs uh, in the archives, feel free to drop an email untiljustice at gmail.com. Until justice at gmail.com. 
much obliged to all the folks uh, who dialed in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Certainly, the weather is good. It was a lovely day here in Seattle. Wow, it felt like summertime. Absolutely amazing from the very beginning all the way through to the end of the day. Certainly, uh, go out, enjoy the sunshine. If you're exercising or hiking or doing something just to feel good, exercise, exercise, enjoy the sun, but remain codified. I would say remain sober. Uh, we certainly talked a lot about the opioid uh, problem this week. Again, uh, increasing reports that this is becoming more of a problem for black people, even more of a reason to vigorously promote sobriety as a part of serious counter racist code. Racist, they are really good at terrorizing black people, especially when we can't think correctly and make great decisions because we are impaired because of whatever narcotics poisons they have dumped on us. Dr. Welsing, Mr. Fuller, Dr. Cambon, Amos Wilson, lots of the folks that Minister Malcolm X, lots of the folks that we say we esteem, they would cert- vigorously encourage us, yes, sobriety, that is the direction we want to head to solve this problem. Let's take excellent care of our brain computers so that we can make solutions to permanently solve the problem. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. Certainly, if we're going to be out and about in a vehicle, let's be sober and buckled up. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time. We are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.